Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello, everybody. It is so great to be here with you today. I know that I say that every time, and I'm probably going to continue to say that until Not Strictly History is no more, which hopefully that doesn't happen, but I've unintentionally got us into a sad place in the first 15 seconds. Um, Hello. It's great to be here with you today. Something interesting has happened to me, and I realized that in this last 25 seconds. Um, I feel like I haven't podcasted in a really long time, which is absurd because um, I've been releasing episodes every week. So for whatever reason, I guess it kind of feels like I've been on autopilot, um, which I didn't realize that I was on, on autopilot for this section of my life. That might mean I've been on autopilot for all of it. Oh, wow. Okay, you know, we don't have time for me to get into an existential crisis here. Um, I have, I've, I feel, again, though, back to the original point I was making, I feel like I haven't podcasted in a long time. I feel like I haven't, like, really connected with you guys in a long time. I'm not sure why. Um, I hope that you guys have really enjoyed our last several episodes. I know that I have. Um, this season has been so interesting for me. It's just been this really interesting, personal, philosophical, historical journey. Um, I hope Duncan is eating right now. I hope that's not coming through in the audio. He started doing this super healthy thing where he won't eat unless I'm home. So that's exciting. Anyway, um, yeah, season two has been so different than I thought that it would be. And um, it's actually, it's been... You know, I I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't. It's been very eye-opening and very different in a very positive way. And I'm really grateful for that. I truly am. So today, today is a very, very important day. Today is the day that we've all been waiting for, for many, many weeks now. This is the episode that I have been putting off for several weeks slash hyping up. I genuinely hope that it fulfills any potential I have unintentionally thrust upon it. Um, I genuinely hope that I'm able to treat this subject in a way that conveys the the, the need that I had to take some extra time on it. Um, Today we are talking about the Irish potato famine. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't know what the potato famine was, and I wouldn't be surprised if you did, Um, but that maybe all you knew about was the name. I don't know. There's, yeah. Like, okay, so here's the thing. Like every single one of our episodes, this is a topic I have always wanted to learn more about, but it's a tiny bit different than in that I first learned about this event in history from reading a book. In this novel, the main character, I mean, it's set in modern times. The main character had Irish ancestry and was very proud of it. And this novel referenced the Irish potato famine a few times. Now, obviously, this novel wasn't about the famine, so I got very, very little information on it, but it did kind of pique my curiosity. It did kind of just start settling into my brain, and thus, here we are. And I actually briefly mentioned in part one of Joan of Arc that this season I've had this experience of feeling like um, the episode I planned was not the episode that I was supposed to do that week. That's happened to me several times this season. And... um, Honestly, this episode was one of those times. It was kind of the other side of that coin. I had something else entirely different planned the week that this episode was originally going to air. 
And it was just not working out. Like I was trying so hard to research this topic and it was not working out. And instead, this topic slash event kind of resurfaced in my mind, like, hey, you've always wanted to learn about me. Here I am. So I said, okay, universe, like this is what we'll do. And um, since it's something I've always wanted to learn more about, I was pretty excited, even though learning about stuff I'm already interested in is always fun, right? But researching this episode, it got really intense, really fast. And in hindsight, I probably should have seen that coming because famine. But another thing that I found out very quickly was that there are a lot of aspects, stories, and working parts. And I realized that it was really, really important for me to get this episode right because there's a lot of suffering involved. And I just wanted to be able to do it justice. So I really, I really hope that I've done that. And really quickly before we get going, I'd just like to shout out a few people who really made today's episode extra special. First and foremost, a huge shout out to the beautiful and extraordinary Heather, a classmate from my time at King's College London, who hails from the lovely land of Northern Ireland. Heather, thank you so, so much. First of all, for being fabulous and being a person I get to say that I know, but also thank you very much for your help with this episode for your insights and your direction into the various aspects of the potato famine. You truly helped me more than I can even say. So thank you very much. Oh, and the next shout out um, to Sean. Sean, yes, you, Sean, um, the new Irish boyfriend of one of my best friends in the whole world who was supposed to help me with this episode and then for whatever reason just didn't. Um, Sean, sir, hello. We haven't even met yet. And um, you're on some fairly precarious ground, my friend. So if you want to keep dating Kaylin and having support from all sides, I suggest you get your house in order, sir. Thank you. Note the sarcasm with the undertone of slightly serious. Um, all right, so let's move on, everybody. Some of the things that we're about to talk today, talk about today, may be challenging to hear. In fact, they will be challenging to hear which is, again, one of the reasons why I took extra time to get this episode right. But I hope that you'll all stick with me because just when it comes right down to it, this is a very important story to tell, and that's why we're here. So in that spirit, we are off to Ireland. So I feel like we have this conversation almost every episode. We went really deep into it um, during the Library of Alexandria episode, but one of the reasons that we've had this episode in the works for several weeks now, I think it's actually been over a month now, is because there is so much that goes into this story. There is a lot to share and there's a lot to get right. There's a lot of players in the game etc. So to begin with, we're just going to lay out some overall facts of the famine, sort of just to give you a general idea of what we're working with, really. So here's some general information. It happened from 1845 to 1852. It was essentially a period of starvation and disease that constituted a social crisis. The most severely affected areas were in Western and Southern Ireland, where the Irish language, the native Irish language, was dominant. And in that language, it is it was often referred to and is still referred to as the bad life or the hard times. 
Now, the worst year of the famine was two years in, 1847, and it became known as the Black 47. So here's an, okay, before I give you this statistic, we need to have a talk about something that's really, really important for this entire episode. Statistics in this famine are very, very difficult to come by. And that's just because, well, you'll, you'll find out a lot. It was just chaos, really. But so I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers at you. And um, because I want, I want to show you the range that we're working with, basically, but but this the numbers that I'm about to give you are um are pretty much accepted. Let's just go with that. Okay, so roughly one million people died in the Irish potato famine, and another one million left the country. You know, but again, I've also read sources that say that the total population decline was closer to four million. So again, I'll probably just be sharing pretty much all the numbers I found as we go along. Another statistic says that the population of Ireland fell by 20 to 25 percent in some townlands. Now, that's a word that's going to come up a lot, a townland. For general purposes, just think of it kind of as a geographic area where people live. Okay, a townland. In some townlands, the population fell as much as 67 percent. That's correct. 67 percent. Between 1845 and 1855, at least 2.1 million people left Ireland, primarily on packet ships. And it was it's one of the greatest exoduses from a single island in history. And we're going to get into emigration because it's a very big part of this story. But one really important thing about the potato famine is this. In Ireland, the famine is known as either the Great Hunger or just the famine. Outside of Ireland, it is known as the Irish potato famine. And there is a lot of debate regarding the nomenclature for this event, right? Whether to use famine or potato famine or great hunger. Most believe that it should really be called the great hunger because it accurately captures the complicated history. Throughout the episode, I will be using famine or great famine um, because after spending so much time studying this, I actually heavily disagree with the fact that the world knows it as the potato famine and that is something that we're definitely going to discuss more later so another thing that we need to know right off the bat is that at the time of the famine ireland was a part of the uk now this had been a thing since january of 1801 with a little thing called the act of union which obviously united ireland with the uk Executive power in Ireland was in the hands of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and the Chief Secretary for Ireland, both of whom were appointed by the British government. Ireland sent 105 members of Parliament to the House of Commons in the UK, and Irish representatives elected 28 of their own number to sit for life in the House of Lords. Between 1832 and 1859, 70% of Irish representatives were landowners, or sons of landowners. Now, this is going to become significant quite soon. Let's just say it wasn't, representation wasn't the best word. Let's say that. Um, In 1844, referring to Ireland, Benjamin Disraeli, you guys have probably heard of him, he stated that Ireland had, quote, a starving population, an absentee aristocracy, an alien established Protestant church, and in addition, the weakest executive in the world. Bold statement, all true. Since the Acts of Union in 1801 up to the point when this statement was made, 
so roughly 40 years, the British government had been grappling with how to govern a country experiencing all of these issues, starving population, absentee aristocracy, et cetera, et cetera, right? It has been calculated, okay, that between 1801 and 1845, so from the time that Ireland became a part of the UK to the time of the famine, there had been 114 commissions and 61 special committees inquiring into the state of Ireland. So what this means is that for roughly 40 years, the government was establishing various committees and commissions to try and assess the state of Ireland and also to come up with some kind of solution to the problems that they found there. And according to a study done of these commissions, Every single one of them over the 40 years found the exact same thing. Quote, without exceptions, their findings prophesied disaster. Ireland was on the verge of starvation, her population rapidly increasing, three quarters of her laborers unemployed, housing conditions appalling, and the standard of living unbelievably low. So what we're really finding out here is that in the decades leading up to the famine, Ireland was on the brink of complete disaster. And this was well known, not just throughout the land, okay, but throughout the government as well. So not surprisingly, the relationship between the Irish people and the British government is a very large part of this story. There are a lot of moving parts to it. None of them very positive. I'll just say that. The the famine is often cited as a very defining moment in Irish history, and a large part of the reason why is because of what it did to the relationship between the people and the government that was, again, already pretty unstable. The famine and its effects permanently changed the island's demographic, political, and cultural landscape. Again, an estimated 2 million refugees left, and it spurred a century-long population decline. Okay? Yes big deal, okay? Relations between the Irish and the British government were obviously already strained. So, you know, we have these commissions realizing that living in Ireland isn't fun for anybody, but not really doing anything about it. So it makes perfect sense that the famine worsened all of this. It heightened ethnic and sectarian tensions. It boosted nationalism and Irish republicanism, which was the political movement for the unity of Ireland and its independence so that it could be its own country away from the UK and be established as a republic. Now, this whole heightened mess, right? This happened not only among all the people that were living in Ireland, but also among the Irish who had emigrated to other parts of the world. And I just, I love this so much. I feel like this is so Irish and I'm just like so here for it that They're basically all saying, like, listen, we may not live in Ireland anymore, but we're Irish and you can leave our country alone. Thank you. Like, it's very um, it's very telling that even the people that no longer lived in Ireland, obviously, were still very Irish at heart and still truly wanted independence for their country. I think that says a lot of things. Um, The documentarian John Percival said that um, the famine, quote, became part of a long story of betrayal and exploitation, which led to the growing movement in Ireland for independence. Which, again, that makes, all of that's falling into place. All of that's making sense. So let's talk about, we're going to talk about this a lot, but we're going to go over it 
fairly quickly for just a minute. We're going to talk about the general response in the UK to the famine. And um, again, we'll go more into it later, but we're just going to give some overview right now. So the initial response was limited, um, but there were several government actions at first that were very constructed, constructive, excuse me, um, that tried to al alleviate the famine distress. And this was all by, um, you know, they, they did, they were trying, okay? And positive things were happening. However, these things were ended by a new administration that came into power in London. And this new exam, this, excuse me, this new administration pursued an economic doctrine known as laissez-faire, which basically means there's not a lot of regulation or government intervention into the market or what's happening. Now, what this means is they said to themselves, okay, if we just like leave this alone, it'll buff out, the system is great, the market's fine, like the market will provide, essentially. And every source that I have found said that a lot of the reason that they pursued this economic doctrine in response to the famine was partly because they believed that the famine was due to lack of moral character. We'll get into that. Don't you even worry. Um, so the, the measures that were, I'm sorry, I'm stuttering. There's just so much going on. Okay, so remember, before this second government came in and ended things, there were measures at first that were helping. These measures were continued later, but um, by the time that happened, they were very, very inadequate. And in my opinion, they were far, far too late, really. Um, another thing that happened during this famine, which we will definitely be getting more into later, is that all throughout the famine, Ireland was still exporting food. And not just like, okay, we're exporting food. They were exporting massive amounts of food. And the government in London refused to stop doing this. And from the very beginning, this was an immediate and continuing controversy. And it definitely contributed to anti-British sentiment and the campaign for independence. The famine also, here's another thing, okay? We're going to get into all of this more. But again, we're just introducing some things. The famine also resulted in tens of thousands of households being evicted. Um, and this was made worse by a provision that forbade access to workhouse aid while somebody was in possession of more than one quarter acre of land. Again, we'll get into this. What's interesting about this entire situation is that something very similar, a, a similar famine happened in the Scottish Highlands, actually, in the 1840s. Not that far away, okay? We're just a little, tiny little sea across, okay? And the same thing happened in the Scottish Highlands. But the landlords of the Scottish Highlands helped their tenants, and unlike their Irish counterparts, did a lot of good things for their tenants, and so there wasn't really any loss of life. We're going to get more into the landlords, trust me. So after the famine, there were a lot of things that changed, which is good. I mean, at least some good came out of this. Well, I don't really want to say that because I don't, it's hard to say that, but at least some change came out of this. That's what we'll say. After the famine, parcels of land became larger to make sure that families were provided with a more sustainable level of income. Um, 
Unfortunately, there was still mass unemployment due to agricultural and economic changes, and poverty remained just an everyday part of Irish life. Alcoholism and mental illness skyrocketed. And this is also, interestingly enough, where we get very, very strict Catholic ideas. You know, when we think of Irish Catholic, I think one of the first things that we think of is um, strict religious religi religiosity, right? Um, and that's actually partly because of the of the famine, because they were kind of, it was kind of drilled into them that um, this famine happened because they were unclean or had low moral character. And um, I think it was still very much the mindset back in in those times to believe that if something like this happened on such a large scale, that God was punishing you in some way. So I think that it just increased the religious nature of the people. And by the end of the famine, they were like, okay, like, if we're strict in our religion, you know, this isn't going to happen again. And it, we've, we see that before the famine, the church was definitely influential, definitely a, a huge part of life, right? But after the famine, it was pretty much all pervasive in people's lives. And that's, um, it's a very interesting thing to have happen because I think our first, maybe in modern times, our first thought would be, oh, people are turning away from God and out of anger or, or whatever. But I think that's a more modern mindset because as we can see here, the people actually turned further to God and to their religion and actually became more strict, which is a very interesting take on things. Okay, so all of this is a pretty good overview slash introduction of what we're working with here. Ireland is a part of the UK, definitely doesn't want to be, the UK doesn't really know how to rule Ireland, Ireland, etc. The layers here would make any onion look pathetic, okay? So what we actually need to do right now is dive into what life was actually like for the people of Ireland before the famine. And that will help us segue into the main event. Because had politics, local customs, and living conditions not been so dire prior to the famine, I think that we'd be telling a very different story today, truly. So let's talk about the middleman system. This system was introduced in Ireland during the 18th century. It was a system for managing property, okay? Rent collection was left in the hands of agents of the landlord or middlemen. This assured that the landlord had regular income from rent, it also relieved them of the direct responsibility of collecting that rent, but it also left their tenants open to exploitation by the middlemen, which was rampant. At the top of the social pyramid, okay, was the ascendancy class, quote unquote. This is the English and Anglo-Irish families who owned most of the land and held more or less unchecked power over their tenants in Ireland at this time. Some of their estates were huge, like huge huge okay for example a man by the that by the name of the earl of lucan owned more than 60,000 acres that's correct so another important um thing that we really need to touch upon here is the religious aspect now most irish people at the time were um catholic and the majority of the catholics were the poor. They lived in conditions of poverty and insecurity. They made up 80% of the population of Ireland at this time. 
and the vast majority of their landlords were what is referred to as quote-unquote absentee landlords. So again, they owned these vast amounts of land in Ireland, but they didn't live there. They lived in England. And it was their impoverished tenants who were paid very minimal wages to raise crops and livestock that would then be exported. Rent was still collected from them, obviously, and then it was sent to England to be spent, which we, you know, we all know how that works with money. Here's here's the statistic here. At this time, there were about 10,000 absentee landlords. That's correct. Um, pause for effect. That is a very significant amount of people here, just allowing the exploitation of land and people so that they just don't have to be there to witness it, I guess. I don't know. In 1800, the first Earl of Clare observed of landlords that, quote, confiscation is their common title. John Fitzgibbon, first Earl of Clare, again, was the Attorney General of Ireland from 1783 to 1789, and he was then Lord Chancellor of Ireland from 1789 to 1802. So this guy knows what he's talking about, okay? He's, he was the executive power in Ireland for quite a while. Um, well, probably not. I should have double-checked that. That was before the Acts of Union. He was really, really important in Ireland for a long time, okay? He worked with landlords. He knew what he was talking about. And again, he said that confiscation was their common title. Now, according to a historian by the name of Cecil Woodham Smith, who we will talk, we will reference quite a bit, the landlords regarded the land in Ireland as a source of income, right? It was just that from which as much money as possible was to be extracted. So the Earl of Clare, who we just quoted, he said that the peasantry quote, was often brooding over their discontent and sullen indignation, right? Um, which is very true. And the landlords just largely looked at the Irish countryside as this hostile place in which to live, which it probably was since their tenants didn't like them very much. Um, some landlords, in fact, only visited their property once or twice in a lifetime, if they visited it at all. The rents from Ireland were generally spent elsewhere, as we talked about, an estimated six million pounds was remitted out of Ireland in 1842. Don't you worry. I inflationed that for you. Today, that would be over 868 million pounds, which is well over a billion dollars, my friend. All of this was created in Ireland and just moved elsewhere to be spent. That, I think we can safely say, is not good for the economy. So we need to address something that at the time was referred to as quote unquote, the land question. But in order to do that, we need to jump back to the year 1704, okay? In this year, the Popery Act or the Penal Law of 1704 required that when a tenant died, his land should be divided equally among his sons, which at the time seemed like a great idea. However, Population growth was a lot. In 140 years, the population grew from about 2 million to 8 million. Quite a jump, really. So this led to plots of land just being reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced as more and more generations came about, right? So by the time of the famine, 
24% of all Irish tenant farms were one to five acres in size, while 40 were five to 15 acres. It's not a lot. It's, I mean, it's, when we think about like the plots of land we have today, right? If you own a home, it's like on a quarter of an acre, like, wow, that's a lot. It's really not. Um, especially if you're growing food, because here's the thing, friends, the tenants were growing food and they had to sell this food in order to make money to pay rent. But this food was also being exported and they also needed food for their own families. And I don't think you realize that uh, like how much land it takes to grow enough food to sell but to also keep to eat. And um, these these farms that they had just weren't big enough. So by the time we get to the 1840s, the time of the famine, land holdings were so small that there was only one crop they could grow on their land that would suffice to feed a family, and that was potatoes. Because, fun fact for everybody about potatoes, you can survive fully on potatoes and still get all of the nutrition that you need. It's true. So in 1843, the British government considered that this whole land issue, the land question in Ireland, was probably the root or the foundational cause of disaffection in the country. Because nobody has any land, nobody has any food, right? They established a royal commission that was chaired by the Earl of Devon to inquire into the laws regarding the occupation of land. Daniel O'Connell, a political leader of the Catholics at this time, described this commission as, quote, perfectly one-sided, being composed entirely of landlords with no tenant representation. So that's definitely going to give us an accurate read on the occupation of land for sure. In February of 1845, the Earl of Devon, okay, the head of this commission, reported, which, okay, okay, I'll say that in a minute, quote, it would be impossible adequately to describe the privations which they, the Irish laborer and his family, habitually and silently endure. In many districts, their only food is the potato, their only beverage, water. Their cabins are seldom a protection against the weather. A bed or a blanket is a rare luxury, and nearly in all cases, their pig and a manure heap constitute their only property. Commissioners concluded that they could not, quote, forbear expressing our strong sense of the patient endurance which the laboring classes have exhibited under sufferings greater, we believe, than the people of any other country in Europe have to sustain. They also stated that bad relations between a landlord and a tenant were principally responsible for all of this. Now, here's because in Ireland, there was no kind of hereditary loyalty. There was no feudal tie. There was no kind of um, tradition of paternalism that really tied um, the people to the land or to the aristocracy as there had as there was in England, because the um, the current aristocracy had actually replaced the former aristocracy about a hundred years before, um, and they had a different religion and different like all these things. So there was no long tradition between peasants and aristocracy to kind of keep this system going essentially. So. What we're basically finding out here is that the government knew very, very well what was going on in Ireland. They knew exactly how dire the situation was for millions of people, and they also knew the main reasons behind all of this. However, that always just seems to be as far as anything ever went. Um, they, they, you know, you do the study, 
you figure it all out. You express in very emotional language how horrible life is for these people, and then you just carry on, I suppose. I mean, nothing really seems to have ever come from these commissions, which um, is really, I mean, let's just say it, that's horrible and incredibly tragic, especially when you can very clearly tell that they understand exactly what's going on here. So there's actually more to this that we need to go over. Let's get back to middlemen for a moment. The ability of a middleman was measured by the rent income that they could contrive to extract from tenants, which just about checks out. Um, they were described in evidence before this commission as, quote, land sharks, bloodsuckers, and the most oppressive species of tyrant whatever lent assistance to the destruction of a country. Strong, strong words. Um, the middlemen leased very large tracts of land from the landlords, and they did this on very long leases with fixed rents, which they then sublet as they saw fit. Now, they would split a holding into smaller and smaller parcels of land so as to increase the amount of rent that they could obtain. Um, and in addition to this, tenants could be evicted for a lot of reasons, such as non-payment of rents, which were usually quite high, or a landlord's decision to suddenly raise sheep or other livestock instead of grain crops, which happened often. Any improvement, now this, this is really going to get you, okay? Any improvement that was made on a holding by a tenant automatically became the property of the landlord when the lease expired or was terminated. And um, the tenant would get no kind of compensation for this. So clearly, the incentive to make improvements to the land was very limited. Most tenants had absolutely no security of tenure on their land. Um, they were tenants at will, which means they could be turned out whenever the landlord chose to, ch to turn them out. The only exception to this arrangement was in um, the area known as Ulster, where under a practice known as tenant right, a tenant was compensated for any improvement they made to their holding. Now. I have no idea why this was only a practice in Ulster. It surely should have been a practice everywhere, um, everywhere else, but it wasn't. According to our historian, Cecil Woodham Smith, the commission stated that, quote, the superior prosperity and tranquility of Ulster compared with the rest of Ireland were due to tenant right. Yeah, I think you could probably safely say that. The landlords often used their powers over their tenants without remorse. Their tenants lived in dread of them. Um, Woodham Smith writes that in these circumstances, quote, industry and enterprise were extinguished and a peasantry created, which was one of the most destitute in Europe. Um, and I don't think we have to comment much on that. Shortly before the Great Famine, the British government reported that poverty was so widespread in Ireland that one third of all Irish small holdings could not support the families after rent was paid. So these tenant families only survived if they were able to send a family member as a seasonal worker to England or Scotland. Following the famine, reforms were implemented that made it illegal to further divide land holdings, which is very good. So in 1841, a couple years before the famine, the census showed a population in Ireland of just over 8 million. The census also showed 
that two-thirds of people depended on agriculture for their survival, but barely received a working wage. It also showed that they had to work for their landlords in return for the small patch of land they needed to grow enough food to feed their own families. And this, my friends, brings us to a system known as monoculture. The practice of growing only one type of crop or raising one kind of animal on a large area of land. All of these things that we have just discussed, people depending on agriculture, um, but barely receiving a working wage, people working for landlords in return for a very small patch of land, all of these factors came together and basically forced Ireland into a system of monoculture to the point where potatoes were the only thing being grown by a very large portion of the population because only the potato could be grown in a sufficient quantity to meet nutritional needs. Which brings us to a part of the episode that I'm sure many of you have been waiting for. It's time to talk about potatoes, everybody. The potato was actually introduced to Ireland as a garden crop for the wealthy. By the late 17th century, it had become widespread as a more supplementary item rather than a principal food. The main diet was still based on butter, milk, and grain products. However, during the Napoleonic Wars, 1805 to 1815-ish, there was a huge expansion of the, of the economy, which meant basically that there was an increased demand for food in England. So in Ireland, farming really, really increased to be able to meet this demand. And there was less and less land for small farmers. So the potato began to be cheaply, chiefly adopted by people at this time because it could grow quickly on a comparatively, comparatively small space. So by 1800, one third of the population had potatoes as their staple food, especially in the wintertime. And it eventually became a year round staple food for farmers. Potatoes were essential to the development of the landlord-tenant system that was specific to Ireland, okay? Because, again, I mean, actually, I haven't said this yet, but I, f I feel like we've hinted at it. The landlord-tenant system is not new worldwide. It's something that's been around for a very, very long time. But the landlord-tenant system that was specific to Ireland at this time is the reason why things were so dire, why people were in such, um, you know, had in such straits, really. Um, and the and the potato of, you know, somehow ended up being a contributing factor to, to this. So because potatoes can be grown relatively quickly on a relatively small parcel of land, um, and they can support you nutritionally, they, again, they contributed to this harsh landlord-tenant system. They supported an extremely cheap workforce, but at the cost of lower living standards. So for the laborer, what became known as a quote-unquote potato wage shaped the expanding economy. The potato was also used extensively as a fodder crop for livestock immediately before the famine. And approximately one-third of potato production was used this way before the famine. Pri Prior to the arrival in Ireland of a disease known as blight, which is a, is a plant disease, only two main potato plant diseases had been discovered. One of them was called dry rot or taint, and the other was a virus known popularly as curl. 
1851, the Census of Ireland commissioners recorded 24 failures of the potato crop going back to 1728, all of these of varying severity. Now, this is closer to the end of the famine when this study was done, but they had they recorded general crop failures through through disease or frost in 1739, 1740, 1770, 1800, and 1807. In 1832, 1833, 1834, and 1836, dry rot and curl caused serious losses in several areas. Widespread failures throughout Ireland also occurred in 1836, 1837, 1839, 1841, and 1844. So according to our friend Cecil Woodham Smith, quote, the unreliability of the potato was an accepted fact in Ireland. Now let's talk about the blight. Let's talk about what many, many people think is the cause of all of this famine, and we'll get into it. But this does this disease of the it's a potato plant. It's a it's a plant disease, my friends. Okay, but obviously it affected potatoes, and um, it's actually not known how and when the blight arrived in Europe. That's still uncertain. However, we're pretty certain that it was not present before 1842. It probably arrived in Europe in 1844. The origin of the pathogen has been traced to a valley in Mexico, so it first spread within North America and then to Europe. We do know that the 1845-1846 blight was caused by the Herb 1 strain of the blight. Let's talk about the pathogen, okay? It is known as Phytophthora infestans. I'm sure that's how you say it. It's a variety of parasite, it is non-photosynthetic, and it's closely related to brown algae, although it is not a fungus. It also, it caused an additional 100,000 deaths outside Ireland, because again, it did hit other parts of Europe, and it influenced a lot of the unrest that was happening in Europe in the 1840s. Now, this pathogen produces dark green leaves that then turn brown, then black spots appear on the surface of the potato leaves and the stems. It often shows near the tips or the edges where water or dew collects. And then might white mold, excuse me, will appear on the plant and then on the tuber, on the potato itself. And eventually the plant will collapse. Now, one of my very good friends named Quinn, she is a microbiologist. I asked her about this because she spec- she specifies that too. She specializes in disease. So I said, hey, talk to me about this plant disease. She said, hey, this isn't TB, but I'll do my best. So she explained this to me in a more scientific, but also like translated it for me. Wait, basically. So according to Quinn, this pathogen, these microbes, okay, the only job that these microbes have is to multiply and keep multiplying. That is their job. The disease that results from this multiplying is merely a secondary consequence of multiplying microbes. They're not creating any kind of disease on purpose. It's a secondary effect of them multiplying. Their multiplying produces a protein which, put very simply, causes necrosis of the plant cells or cell death. A protein is produced that kills the plant cells and thus we have rotten potatoes. 
and this pathogen thrives in a cool, wet environment. Ireland, right? In 1844, British newspapers carried reports concerning a disease that for two years had been attacking potato crops in America. In 1843 and 1844, blight largely destroyed the potato crops in the eastern U.S. Ships then from Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York City could have easily carried diseased potatoes from these areas to European ports. Obviously, this wasn't intentional in any way. And I actually find it very, very interesting that the United States um, experienced significant crop loss at this time from this same thing. And yet it's not really a big deal historically. It's not something that we learn about. It wasn't a quote unquote event like the way the Great Famine is in Ireland. And I think that the reasons why will become more and more apparent as we go along. So American plant pathologist William C. Paddock posited that the blight was transported via potatoes that were being carried to feed passengers on merchant ships sailing from America to Ireland. That's just a theory. Um, once the blight was introduced in Ireland and Europe, it spread rapidly. So by mid-August of 1845, it had reached much of northern and central Europe, Belgium, the Netherlands, northern France, and southern England. On August 16, 1845, the Gardener's Chronicle and Horticultural Gazette, now these are Irish newspapers, reported, quote, a blight of unusual character on the Isle of Wight. A week later, on August 23rd, it reported that, quote, a fearful malady has broken out among the potato crop. In Belgium, the fields are said to be completely desolated. There is hardly a sound sample in Covent Garden Market. As for cure for this distemper, there is none. And these reports were extensively covered in all of the Irish newspapers. A few weeks later, on September 11th, 1845, the Freeman's Journal reported on, quote, the appearance of what is called cholera in potatoes in Ireland, especially in the north. And then two days later, on September 13th, the Gardener's Chronicle announced, quote, We stop the press with very great regret to announce that the potato moraine has unequivoc unequivocally declared itself in Ireland. And I want you all to just take a moment, just take a small moment to really put yourself in this position as much as you can. Really think about this. You're in a society that is largely very poor and destitute, and you rely heavily on one thing, a potato. Your, your survival relies heavily on the success of this crop. And um, for a long, long time, you're hearing reports of this disease taking out the crop in all of the countries surrounding you and, you, and it's getting closer and closer. And then newspapers in your country start reporting it. And then you read the words, we stop the press with very great regret to announce that the potato moraine has unequivocally declared itself in Ireland. I don't think that we can truly grasp how heavy those words must have been to people and just what that really meant. Truly, I don't think that we, that we can know. Um, and I, I think that the heaviness, it, I, overwhelming to say the very least. And despite this, 
the British government remained pretty optimistic over the next few weeks. Even it did receive conflicting reports, to be honest. So it was only when the crop was harvested in October that the scale of destruction became apparent. Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel wrote to Sir James Graham, who was the Home Secretary, in mid-October that he found the reports, quote, very alarming. But he also reminded him that there was, quote, always a tendency to exaggeration in Irish news. I hate this because for, mo- for the most part, I'm a pro-Peel kind of gal. Um, but, you know, we'll also get into the attitude towards Ireland because that's just garbage fest. But so crop loss in 1845 has been estimated to be anywhere from as high as one third to one half of all cultivated acreage. The Mansion House Committee in Dublin to which hundreds of letters were directed from all over Ireland, claimed that on November 19, 1845, to have ascertained beyond a shadow of of a doubt that, quote, considerably more than one-third of the entire potato crop has already been destroyed. In 1846, the next year, three-fourths of the harvest was lost to blight. That's that's correct. 75% of the entire harvest in Ireland. By December of 1846, a third of a million destitute people were employed in public works. Now, let's go over one more time why the pathogen was so devastating to Ireland and not necessarily to the other countries that it hit. Again, they have a dependency on a single crop. Not only that, they only grew one variety of potato called the Irish lumper. And without going too far into it, everybody, fun fact about me, Jordan, I grew up on a potato farm, a very large potato farm. And to be honest, I should know a lot more than I do, but I'm going to explain something to you. It's very, very important to grow more than one variety of potato. You need to have a genetic variability. It helps your crops remain stronger and healthier. It also helps the quality and um, the quality of your soil and the content of your soil, all of that. So not only was Ireland depending on a single crop, they were also depending on a single variety, which is, again, not good. According to Irish economic historian Cormac O'Greda, the first attack of potato blight caused considerable hardship in rural Ireland from the autumn of 1846. This is when the first death from starvation was these deaths were first recorded and the next year in 1847 again this is the worst year of the of the famine seed potatoes were very very scarce and here's 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 the question the basic question if you don't have a lot of seeds what happens you can't grow a lot of food and hunger continues so then the next year yields were only two-thirds of normal. And since over 3 million Irish people were totally dependent on potatoes for food, hunger and famine were quite inevitable. Okay, so we need to take a moment, everybody, to just go down a little bit of a side road. Um, it's, it's an important side road. We need to talk about something that's again, very important. We need to talk about starvation and the impact that it has on your body. Now, 
I think that we all have a pretty general idea in our brain of what starvation is and what it looks like. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into it for this episode because I think it provides some very valuable context to what we're talking about here. So under normal circumstances, your body breaks down food into glucose and this glucose provides energy to your body. It takes about 24 hours without eating for your body to change how it produces energy. During these first 24 hours without food, um, your glucose storage is completely depleted and your body begins to, to convert glycogen from your liver and muscles into glucose. By the second day without food, your glucose and glycogen are depleted and your body will begin to break down muscle tissue to provide energy. Now, interestingly enough, this is actually a temporary thing at the beginning of the starvation process. Because your body is designed to conserve muscle, not break it down, this is temporary at first. So during this phase, your metabolism is actually shifting and changing. And once that shift occurs, your body will then um, switch from relying on muscle to relying on your fat stores to create energy, which is a process known as ketosis. During your first five days without food, a person will generally lose two to four pounds of body weight each day. Most of this is related to dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. Over several weeks of starvation, the changes in your body will usually cause the weight loss to slow down to an average of 0.7 pounds per day. And I mean, in general, the more fat stores that you have available, the longer that you can typically survive during starvation. However, there are studies that have been done that show this isn't necessarily always the case. Um, depending on your body type and overall health, you could still, um, I mean, it's quite heavy. You could still die fairly quickly, even if you have more fat stores than the next person. Um, it just, it kind of depends on, again, your overall health. So once your fat stores have been completely metabolized, your body then goes back to the muscle phase to break down energy since your muscles are the only remaining fuel source left in your body. And this is when you begin to experience side effects of starvation that are um, a lot more severe. Obviously, up to this point, you have been experiencing a lot of symptoms, right? But it's when you get to this point that your body is now continuously breaking down muscle. This is when long-term side effects start to happen. Now, side effects of starvation are many, but and the, many, many. They include a lot of things. They, um, I'm going to read you a few of the side effects, but remember the, the, that I'm stuttering because there's a lot going on. Side effects include, but are not limited to, let's say it that way, faintness, dizziness, cognitive changes, low blood pressure, slow heartbeat, weakness, dehydration, changes in thyroid function, abdominal pain, electrolyte imbalance, heart attack, or organ failure. On top of this, okay, the malnourished are very, very vulnerable to infection, such as measles, diphtheria, diarrhea, tuberculosis, most respiratory infections, whooping cough, intestinal parasites, and cholera are all strongly conditioned by nutritional status. Um, and this is, this is really important to remember because most of the time when a person is starving and they, and they pass away, it's not usually from starving to death. A lot of the time it is from the illnesses that result 
from starvation. Um, and I, I think that technically you can still call that a death by starvation, but again, it's because you have no immune system left and you're susceptible to any kind of infection and you die from any number of diseases. Another important thing to, rem to know about all of this is there's something called, um, famine fever, and it was very, very prevalent at this time, which is why they call it famine fever. And um, fever and famine go hand in hand all throughout history. But again, it's just this same, this same idea that when you're malnourished, you're vulnerable to pretty much any in infection or disease. And a lot of people in the Irish potato famine died of famine fever. Um, and and gen it's just what it sounds like. It's just a general fever that you can't get rid of because you're not strong enough to, and eventually you pass away. Now, back to our starvation here. There is There does come a point in the starvation process where you're essentially too far gone. You cannot consume enough of what you need in order to come back from it. And we are going to talk more about this because interestingly enough, it is during this time of the potato famine that doctors and, you know, various medical personnel kind of started studying starvation and um, the impact that it has on the human body and especially the people who survived the famine. They studied these, all of these kinds of things. So it's, it's really interesting, the scientific things that came out of the famine. And again, we'll talk more about that in a minute. So let's get back to 1840s Ireland and the plight of the everyday people. Now, Here's the thing. This potato blight was a novelty to pretty much all of the Irish peasants at this time. Potato diseases were not unknown. Uh, again, they had caused partial failures in recent decades. But this kind of blight, this disease, was completely beyond their experience. When they harvested their potatoes that first fall and they found that all of their potatoes were rotten and inedible, I mean... That, that's, inc that's incredible in the worst way. They had absolutely no food reserves, and most of the country, uh, most of the poor people in the country relied on a bartering system because there's not a lot of money in circulation, remember? So what they do is they barter, and if you don't have something to barter, then what do you do? I mean, when, when they did get their hands on money, they had to decide between paying rent and buying food. And, you know, from what we learned about the landlord-tenant situation, what are you going to choose, do you suppose? So many, many people actually resorted to eating their seed potatoes. No, guys. I mean, I get it, but don't eat your seed potatoes, okay? Now, here's another thing that's very, very sad. So for pretty much always, Ireland has been known as a very charitable and neighborly place. And I think today it definitely still has that that culture, which is lovely. But um, a lot of the sources that I found, particularly primary sources, said that this, this traditional Irish generosity was gone during this time. And they watched people just turn on each other like wolves, which is so sad. This was This was written down by many different people. It was very, very common at the time for the starving people to eat grass and nettles. They would boil the nettles and eat it as a broth. And again, this was excruciatingly common during the famine. Now, from 1845, the year of the famine, 
the poor began to die in very, very large numbers, okay? At first, a significant number of them were dying in their homes or in local dispensaries. The death rates rose sharply in the winter, which makes sense. Many of them preferred to die in their homes, so it was common to find entire families dead in their cabins. By 1846, local graveyards could not cope with the number of people that were passing away, so priests had to consecrate new burial grounds everywhere. These are known as famine graveyards, and today nearly every locality in Ireland has one of these famine graveyards. I have also um, found sources that said that the living had no strength to bury the dead, so there were places where bodies were just lying out in the open and the authorities had to hire people to bury them, that people were just dying on the side of the road. Um, we've mentioned briefly that evictions were a big thing at this time and we will definitely come back to it. But but um, eviction was basically a death sentence, which makes sense. Um, interestingly enough, in some areas, farmers were able to save a good portion of their crop. For example, in East Ulster, it didn't suffer as much initially because it was more industrialized than the rest of the country. However, Ireland was still largely agrarian because they had been so busy supporting the Industrial Revolution elsewhere, and that's another reason why the famine hit them so hard. So let's talk about 1847, the worst year of the famine, again known as the Black 47. In this year, the famine was in pretty much every single part of Ireland. In 1847, a man by the name of Dr. Dan Donovan estimated that between one-third and one-half of the local population was laboring under fever and dysentery. He became the chief authority on the difference between death by starvation and death by disease, and he performed many autopsies and, and learned all of this. He also established the medical theory that the victims of famine and starvation often never fully recover. He said, quote, it is impossible to resurrect the enemy, the energies of the truly famine struck. Interestingly enough, another big killer at this time was food poisoning. And this is because the starving were desperate and they ate anything they could find, even food that was inedible or tainted. Grass and nettles are just one example. So even in regions if that were not as hit by the famine, um, you know, there, there was still a lot of death, and that is because they were impacted by spreading disease. The city of Belfast is an example of this. There were many, many people coming in from the country looking for work, looking for food, and they were carrying these diseases, and thus these diseases would spread throughout the cities and people were dying. So, What's, what we need to establish, though, is that only the potato failed. Only the potato, okay? Other crops and livestock throughout Ireland were fine, and they were even strengthened during the famine. This is, this is um, a little tidbit from a source I found, that Ireland's livestock were being very well fed and fattened for export during the, during the famine, while its children died on the, in the streets and fields. And just to, you know, kind of ram that home a little bit, in 1847, the Black 47, it was a record year for exports. Even areas hit hardest by the famine were exporting food to Britain and elsewhere. 
food traveled under a military guard to protect it from the starving Irish people. So here's the thing. A lack of food was not the problem, nor necessarily the ability to distribute food. The problem was that food prices were too high and farmers had no money because of failed crops. Let's talk about Let's talk about this one example in County Galway. 300 plus people were ordered to work on a road about 20 miles from their homes. This was a government relief project. If they didn't show up, they risked losing their relief. Now, what this means is the government comes up with a project for them to work on so that they can get money and food in return, right? So they're told, hey, go 20 miles away to work on this road. If they don't show up, they risk losing work and money and food. So a starving crowd of, again, over 300 men, women, and children walk 20 miles to this new project. During this walk, about 300 of them died. Let's talk about workhouses, everybody, because they were a really big deal at this time. Workhouses were where you went when you had no other option. You went there to work and allegedly you would be taken care of in return. You had a place to live and sleep and get food and some money. These workhouses were run off of funds from local taxpayers, local landlords. In these workhouses, families were separated. There was male-female segregation. There was abuse. There was grueling work for very inadequate food and clothing. Rampant disease. They were also incredibly overcrowded. Many of the poor preferred to die in their own cabins or on the side of the road than to go to the workhouse because, let's face it, in many ways, the workhouse, too, was a kind of death sentence. To give you a little bit more context here, the Poor Law Act of 1838 stated, quote, no individual capable of exertion must ever be permitted to be idle in a workhouse. I'm blinking and pausing because I have nothing to say. So we've touched a little bit on immigration, how many people left because that was really their only option. Um, The ships that they boarded in order to leave Ireland became known as quote-unquote coffin ships because of the horrible conditions on board. Most of the time, one in five people or more died. Even more common, a lot of people died after disembarking. For example, in Canada, there was what was known as the quarantine sheds when you first arrived there, and at least 5,000 people died in the quarantine sheds. Um, it's, it's just, it's facts like this that really drive home what we're dealing with here. Okay, so now that we're over an hour into this episode, um, I feel like we've done a pretty decent job of getting some great general ideas of what's going on here, but let's get into some details and in particular, some government details. So at the beginning of the famine, Um, that is the widespread crop failure in November of 1845, British Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel purchased 100,000 pounds, meaning money, worth of maize and cornmeal from America. Now, the government hoped that by doing this, they would not, quote, stifle private enterprise and that their actions would not act as a deterrent to local relief efforts. 
Um, yes, of course, because let's hope that giving food to starving people won't cause them to lose motivation. Anyway, due to poor weather, the first shipment of this cornmeal and maize didn't make it to Ireland until early February of 1846, and the initial shipments were of unground dried kernels. But the few Irish mills that were in operation were not equipped for milling maize and so a long and complicated milling process had to be adopted before any of this cornmeal could even be distributed. In addition, before the cornmeal could be consumed, it had to be, quote, very much cooked again, or eating it would result in very severe bowel complaints. Due to its yellow, yellow color, excuse me, and initial unpopularity, it became known as Peel's Brimstone. In October of 1845, Peel moved to repeal the Corn Laws, which were tariffs on grain, which kept the price of bread pretty high. But this issue actually split his party in half, and he had insufficient support from his own colleagues to push the measure through. This resulted in him resigning in December, but the opposition was unable to form a government, and so he was reappointed. In March of 1846, he set up a program of public works in Ireland, but the famine, the famine just continued to get worse in 1846. And um, the repeal of the Corn Laws later did happen, but that did very little to help the starving Irish. When the Now listen, when the Corn Laws were finally repealed, when that was finally done, okay, this measure permanently split the Conservative Party, and this led to the permanent fall of Peel's ministry. Um, on June 25th, the second reading of the government's Irish coercion bill was defeated by 73 votes in the House of Commons. I'm going to translate this for you. The Irish coercion bill was an act of parliament that gave a legal basis for increased state powers to suppress popular discontent and disorder. However, that didn't happen. That was defeated. So that's good. Peel was forced to resign as prime minister on June 29th. 1846, and the Whig leader, for those of you who may not know, Whigs are a party in England, the Whig leader, Lord John Russell, became the new prime minister. Once he became prime minister, the famine crisis got even worse. The measures taken by the Russell government were hideously inadequate. I do not feel bad saying that. Again, these are the people that pursued the policy of laissez-faire, believing that the market would provide the food needed because it had done so thus far, surely. As such, they refused to interfere with all of the exports coming from Ireland to England. They also proceeded to halt the previous government's food and relief works. What did this do, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. It left hundreds of thousands of people without access to work, money, or food. Yep, it sure did. Now, Russell's ministry did introduce a new program of public works. Why couldn't they just leave alone the one that was already in place and working, you ask? I don't know. I don't, politics and egos, I don't know. By the end of December of 1846, this new program was in place and it employed about half a million people, which is great, right? However, this new program was very, very complicated, and it was pretty much impossible to run. So we love that for everybody. Now, let's come to another key player in our story by the name of Charles Trevelyan. And I was going to look up how to say his name correctly, um, but I hate him, 
so I don't care. I'm just going to be honest with you. We're going to get to know him really, really well. His job was this. Simply put, he was the man in charge of the administration of government relief. What did he do? Thank you for asking. The first thing that he did was limit the government's food aid program. He did this because he claimed that food would be readily imported into Ireland once the people had more money to spend after wages were paid on new public works projects. Here's my question. You mean the program of public works that was so ridiculous it couldn't be ran? That one? That that system is what we're relying on for people to get money so that we can then import food. So let's stop aiding people with food. Totally makes sense. Okay. He also said, quote, The judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson, and that calamity must not be too mitigated. The real evil we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. What? Excuse me, sir. What? 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 I have read this quote probably 75,000 times, and it never ceases to disgust me. I am appalled. I am horrified. It is... It is beyond my comprehension that a human being believed this and was in charge of administration to an entire country this is with this is this is beyond anything this is <sighs> let's keep reading this man also described the famine as Quote, a direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence, which laid bare the deep and inveterate root of social evil. He also affirmed that the famine was, quote, the sharp but effectual remedy by which the cure is likely to be effected. God grant that the generation to which this opportunity has been offered might rightly perform its part. Furthermore, in private correspondence, Trevelyan explained how the famine could bring benefit to the English. Sure did. In a personal letter, he wrote, quote, We must not complain of what we really want to obtain. If small farmers go and their landlords are reduced to sell portions of their estates to persons who will invest capital, we shall at last arrive at something like a satisfactory settlement of the country. I hate this man so much. I don't have words in my brain, and I don't think that there are words in any language to describe this atrocity. I truly don't. Like, you might think I'm trying to be funny here. I'm not. This is 
appalling and abhorrent in every single way. It truly is, it truly disgusts me. I'm not, it's, and he's not the only person at this time who felt this way. There was an economics professor at Oxford who wrote that the famine, quote, could not kill more than one million people, and that would scarcely be enough to do any good. Yep. Others suggested that Lord Russell was um, a supporter of an idea that calculated, quote, how far English colonization and English policy might be effectively carried out by Irish starvation. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a pause because I'm really upset. Okay, so I know that we're all a little bit worked up about this, but it's really important to note that not everybody thought these things. And there was actually very sharp criticism of the government's response by other politicians from day one. Contemporary opinion was very sharply critical of the Russell government's response to and management of the famine. From the start, there were accusations that the government failed to grasp the magnitude of the disaster. Some people, in fact, thought that the government response indicated its question on the so-called quote-unquote Irish question or how to respond to Irish nationalism and calls for Irish independence. Sir James Graham, who had been the Home Secretary for Sir Robert Peel, wrote to Peel that in his opinion, quote, the real extent and magnitude of the Irish difficulty are underestimated by the government and cannot be met by measures within the strict rule of economical science. I agree, Sir James Graham. Thank you. Lord Clarendon, who became the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland some years into the famine, wrote to Prime Minister Russell on April 6th of 1849, urging that the government propose additional relief measures. In this letter, he said, quote, I don't think there is another legislature in Europe that would disregard such suffering as now exists in the west of Ireland or coldly persist in a policy of extermination. Please remember that for later in the episode. Thank you. Chief Poor Law Commissioner Edward Twistleton ended up resigning in protest to certain measures and testified that, quote, comparatively trifling sums were required for Britain to spare itself the deep disgrace of permitting its miserable fellow subjects to die of starvation. Yep. According to scholar Peter Gray, who wrote The Irish Famine, the government spent about £7 million for relief in Ireland between 1845 and 1850. Quote, representing less than half of 1% of the British gross national product over the five years. Contemporaries noted that the sharp contrast with the £20 million compensation given to West Indian slave owners in the 1930s. End quote. Let's talk about this. In five years, they spent seven million pounds on relieving a starving nation. In the 1830s, they gave 20 million pounds as compensation to slaveholders in the West Indies. And that just about checks out, doesn't it? Other critics said that even after the government realized the scope of the crisis, it failed to take sufficient steps to address it. 
Yes. John Mitchell, who was leader of a political movement called the Young Ireland Movement, wrote in 1860. So this is, you know, 20, 15-ish years after the famine. He wrote, quote, I have called it an artificial famine. That is to say, it was a famine which desolated a rich and fertile island that produced every year abundance and superabundance to sustain all her people and many more. The English indeed called the famine a dispensation of providence and ascribe it entirely to the blight on potatoes. But potatoes failed in like manner all over Europe, yet there was no famine save in Ireland. The British account of the matter then is first a fraud, second a blasphemy. The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. And that last sentence has become famous. The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. And just to, you know, maybe clarify this point a little bit, a famine is really just defined as an extreme scarcity of food, right? So definitely the potato blight happened, the crop did fail. However, the extreme scarcity of food, not caused by the blight. Just keep that in your pocket, think about that. So basically what's happening here is that the government is not helping like they should be, and they were stopped by the other half of the government when they tried. Um, But there is one aspect of government aid that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the Navy. On January 2nd, 1846, so not too long after the initial crop failure, the Royal Navy squadron that was stationed in Cork was ordered to assist um, distressed regions. For the next year, they undertook significant relief operations by transporting government relief into the ports along the Irish coast. After the famine had been going on for about a year, um, Trevelyan ordered every available steamer in Ireland to assist in relief. Now listen. He ordered a few good things here, but we're going to don't give him any credit. In January of 1846, the Royal Navy Squadron at Cork was ordered to distribute um, supplies from the British Relief Association along with government relief. And all of this was to be treated and distributed as if it was government aid. In addition, some naval officers oversaw the logistics of relief operations further inland from just the ports, which was very needed. The next month, Trevelyan ordered the Royal Navy surgeons to be dispatched throughout the island, and they were ordered to, number one, provide medical care for those suffering from illnesses that accompanied starvation, number two, distribute medicines that were in short supply on the island, And number three, assist in proper sanitary burials for those who had already died. Now, it's very true that these efforts were significant and very needed. But listen, when you have hundreds of thousands or even millions of people, as was the case here, suffering from starvation and all of the other diseases and things that come along with that, any relief effort that isn't on an equally massive scale is going to ultimately be sufficient, insufficient in really making a difference for the vast majority of people. As such, mass mortality was not prevented here. So this is really just a little taste of what's happening in the government in response to the famine. But what did the people do? Well, that's a great question. I have the answer. Starting in 1845, as early as the initial blight and crop failure, the city government in Dublin 
sent a memorial um, memorandum letter, whatever you want to call it, sent to the queen, Queen Victoria, quote unquote, praying her to call parliament together early. They were not in session at this time. And they asked her to recommend the requisition of some public money for public works, especially railways in Ireland. What they're saying is, hey, please give us work. The town council of Belfast made similar suggestions. It is very important to note that these organizations were not asking for charity. They were meeting together and coming up with solutions to the problem. In early November of 1845, around the time when everybody's realizing there's no potatoes, a deputation from the citizens of Dublin, including the Duke of Leinster, um, Lord Clincurry, Daniel O'Connor, and the Lord Mayor, Kate, the Mayor of Dublin, and all of these cronies went to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland at the time, who was Lord Hatesbury, to offer suggestions. These are the suggestions they offered. To open ports to foreign corn, to stop distillation from grain, to prohibit the export of food, and to provide employment through public works. Now, Lord Hatesbury urged them not to be alarmed. He said that they, quote, were premature. He said that scientists were inquiring into all of these matters and that the inspectors of constabulary and stipendiary magistrates were charged with making constant reports from their districts and that there was no, quote, immediate pressure on the market. Um, at this point, they knew that most of the potato crop in the country had failed. I'm just going to throw that out there. On December 8th of 1845, Daniel O'Connell, we've talked about him a little bit, head of the Repeal Association, which is really just a political movement set up to bring about the independence of Ireland, right? He came, you know, he proposed several remedies to the impending disaster because at this point, all the crops have failed, yes, but it's December of 1845. Like, there's time to, to soften the blow here, right? One of the first things that he suggested was the introduction of tenant right as practiced in Ulster. Now, we've talked about this already. This was when the landlord would get fair rent for his land, but he would also give the tenant compensation for any money he may have, he may have spent in order to improve the land. He said that if they distributed this, this practice everywhere, it would really help. He's not wrong. He also noted actions taken by the Belgian legislature during the same time, because again, Belgium had been hit by the blight as well. He talked about how they shut their ports against the export of provisions and opened them to imports. He also suggested that if Ireland was just independent, the ports would immediately be thrown open and the abundant crops that were raised in Ireland would be kept for the people of Ireland, as had been done in the 1700s when Ireland had um, experienced food shortages. So he's not um, suggesting anything that has not been done or that's not being done in other places. Everything he's suggesting is very well established to help, basically. He also maintained that only an Irish parliament would provide both food and employment for the people. So he basically said that Ireland's only hope for survival was to become independent again. Now, John Mitchell, a prominent politician, we read that very intense quote of his a few minutes ago about England creating the famine. He later wrote one of the first widely circulated tracts on the famine 
It's called The Last Conquest of Ireland, Perhaps. It was published in 1861. Now, this this um, book that he wrote is where we get that quote, the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. Also in this book, it proposed that the British actions during the famine and their treatment of the Irish were a deliberate effort at genocide. And again, he wrote, the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. He was actually charged with sedition or treason for his writings. These specific charges were actually dropped to avoid the death penalty, but he was still charged for other things. And he was convicted by a packed jury under the Treason Felony Act and sentenced to 14 years transportation in Bermuda, which basically means he was exiled to Bermuda to work really, really hard. That's what happened to him for saying, hey, the English created the famine. Okay, so it is time for us to address the elephant in the room, my friends. Exports. We've talked about it a lot so far, but we have yet to really talk about it. So now we're going to. The truth was, um, is this, that the exports out of Ireland never stopped during the famine. In fact, some of them even increased. Let's talk about imports for just a second. Imports should have been increased as much as possible, you know, to feed starving people. After the spring of 1847, imports of grain did increase, but this was for livestock feed. I'm not kidding. They increased imports to feed livestock that would in turn be exported while people were starving. Now, if you'll remember, we briefly mentioned earlier that food had to be taken to ports under armed escort to save it from hordes of starving people. Now, this was really the biggest criticism of all of the government. Why weren't exports being stopped and the food that was being produced there given to the people there? Literally, why? From the very beginning of the famine, Irish politicians had called for a stop on exports so that the people could eat the food that was being produced in the country. They also called for more imputs, imports excuse me, to get extra food. All, both of these things were very, very standard for a country undergoing food shortages. However, neither of these things happened. Again, this is not a wild suggestion to stop exports and increase imports. This is something that had been done all throughout Europe in many, many cases of famine. Now listen, in fact, medieval parliaments had done this same thing centuries before in Ireland during periods of distress. I'm going to say that again. Parliaments in medieval Ireland did this same thing. Okay? If a medieval parliament could get their crap together enough to do this, then what the heck is the 1800s doing? What? And get this, there's actually an even better example. Ireland had experienced food shortages in 18, the, the early 1780s. In response to this, ports were closed to exporting food with the intention of keeping locally grown food in Ireland to feed the hungry Irish people and food prices promptly dropped. 
So not only did the medieval government have a way better grasp on this, the government from 70 years earlier had also done a better job in a similar situation. So because of all of this nonsense, it is pretty understandable that the Great Famine became known in the native Irish language as the hard time. I honestly think that when we first hear the word famine, we have a lot of preconceived notions of what that means and how famine occurs in a society. I don't think we ever expect to come upon a story like this one. The crops did fail in Ireland, and this did cause massive food shortages and very bad problems because they were so dependent on this crop that failed. However, there were many, many different ways that this disaster could have been handled, and simply put, none of them were implemented. As a consequence of all of this, the time of the Great Famine, 1845 to 1851, is also known as one full of very intense political confrontation in Ireland. Who is surprised at this? No one. Thank you. A more radical group known as Young Ireland seceded from the repeal movement in July of 1846, and they attempted an armed rebellion in 1848 that was unsuccessful. This political movement was committed to a struggle for independence and democratic reform. Again, they were just a little bit more radical as to how they went about it. Now, our friend, the historian Cecil Woodham Smith, wrote that no issue has provoked so much anger and embittered relations between England and Ireland so much, quote, as the indisputable fact that huge quantities of food were exported from Ireland to England throughout the period when the people of Ireland were dying of starvation. While in addition to the maize imports, four times as much wheat was imported into Ireland at the height of the famine as was exported, much of the imported wheat was used to feed livestock. Woodham Smith also talks about how the um, the workhouses were funded by local taxpayers. We've talked about this, right? And in areas where the famine was really, really bad, the tenants couldn't pay their rent, and thus the landlords also weren't getting any income. So they too were struggling and could not um, support the workhouses. It was only by selling food, some of which would be inevitably exported, that a circle could be created whereby rents and rates could all be paid and the workhouses could be funded. Relief through the workhouse system was just overwhelmed by the enormous scale and duration of the famine. To say the least, okay. According to historian James Donnelly, quote, the picture of the Irish people starving as food was exported was the most powerful image in the nationalist construct of the famine. It's time to talk about the poor laws because they're really important. So essentially, the Irish poor laws were a series of acts of parliament intended to address local instability after widespread and persistent poverty. Now, these came into effect before the famine, long before the famine. And it was through these laws that the government started to administer relief during the famine. So in January of 1847, excuse me, the government turned to a mixture of, quote, indoor and outdoor relief. Indoor relief were the workhouses. Outdoor relief was soup kitchens. 
Now, again, for like the fifth, five millionth time, the cost of the poor laws fell primarily on local landlords. So in order to reduce their liability, landlords started evicting their tenants. And don't worry, we're going to be getting more into evictions. I promise that it will happen. In June of 1847, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed, which embodied a principle that was very popular in Britain, that Irish property must support Irish poverty. Pretty much everybody thought that there were two main parties to blame for the devastating effects of the famine, the Irish landlords and the British Parliament. Listen, the news, this point was actually raised in the news. Many different, many, many different newspapers touched on this. In fact, the Illustrated London News wrote in February of 1847 that when it came to the landlords, quote, there was no law parliament would not pass at their request and no abuse it would not defend for them. In March of that year, the Times reported that Britain had permitted in Ireland, quote, a mass of poverty, disaffection, and degradation without a parallel in the world. It allowed proprietors to suck the very lifeblood of that wretched race. So, the other wild truth about all of this is that everybody knows what's going on and where most of the blame can be placed, and yet nothing is changing. Nothing is happening. What? It's it. Why is that? To make matters even worse, let's talk about a little something from the Irish poor laws known as the Gregory Clause. And we've touched on this a little bit, okay? It, this clause was named after William H. Gregory, MP. And what did it do? I'll tell you. It prohibited anyone who held at least a quarter of an acre of land from receiving relief. Now, in theory, this clause was viewed as an instrument for a more cost-effective way to administer public relief. In practice, this is what the clause meant. It meant that if a farmer had sold all of his produce to pay rent and taxes, which was most often the case, he would then have no other choice but to apply for public outdoor relief or the right to go to the soup kitchen so that he and his family could eat. Since this was the case for a lot of people, thousands and thousands of farmers ended up having to do this very thing, sell all their food to pay rent and taxes, and then apply for the right to eat at a soup kitchen. However, because of the Gregory Clause, these farmers could not be allowed aid because they had land, and they would not be granted the right to access public aid until they had first forfeited their land to their landlord. That's correct. So remember our repeal friend, Mitchell, John Mitchell, he wrote that, quote, it is the able-bodied idler who is to be fed. If he attempted to till but one small measurement of ground, he dies. So this whole fiasco began to be known as, quote, passing paupers through the poorhouse. A man went in and a pauper came out. These factors all combined to drive people off of the land. 90,000 people had to forfeit their land in 1849 and 104,000 in 1850. Historian James Donnelly, we just quoted him a few minutes ago, he described the Gregory Clause as a, quote, vicious amendment to the Irish poor law. 
here's the thing. The Gregory Clause, the drawbacks of this clause became apparent very, very quickly. Somehow they were not seen beforehand. Nobody thought about this, really. It wasn't until after it was passed and hundreds of thousands of people were negatively impacted that Parliament realized that this clause could really just be used as an estate clearing device, which it was. From a humanitarian perspective, this clause was very soon viewed as little more than murderous, and according to Donnelly, it became obvious to many people at the time that the quarter acre clause was, quote, indirectly a death dealing instrument. All right, everybody. So we need to talk about the estates in Ireland for a minute. We have spent a good amount of time bashing absentee landlords, which is very warranted, and thus I will not apologize. But we also need to talk about how some estates were actually also suffering. So living on an estate and renting from them was a very reciprocal relationship, my friends. You pay rent to the estate, they give back to you by allowing you to live there and work the land, etc. So, even though we've seen how landlords were exploiting their renters and just going hard for very unethical practices, a famine is definitely going to adversely impact an estate as well in many, many ways. Because if an estate functions primarily on rents, then how does it continue when its people cannot pay rent? How does the estate keep functioning when the renters are starving and dying? And if the cost of local aid is primarily falling on landowners, how can they pay for this aid when their estates are failing and not generating any income? Questions. Very important ones. It's crucial to remember things like this because while the famine was mostly impacting those of the lower classes, it did have a really large impact on farms and estates in this way. Which brings us to the year 1849, we're a few years into the famine, when the government decided to step in and help the estates that were struggling. They did this by passing the Encumbered Estates Act. Thank you for asking what it is. I'll tell you, this act allowed estates that were struggling or falling behind financially to be auctioned off upon petitions from creditors. So, in translation... If there were landowners who were also struggling because of the famine, it's no big deal. We'll just sell your estate. So clearly, the landowners who did find themselves in this position didn't actually have a choice, and their estates were taken from them by the government and sold at auction. These estates were then purchased by very wealthy investors from England. And what do you suppose they turned around and did? Well, they looked at their new lands and all of the tenants still renting them and decided it was a fabulous idea to raise the rent. You know, because there's an unprecedented and horrendous famine going on and nobody can pay rent as it is. But yes, let's raise the rent. Oh, and if you can't pay rent, that's okay. That's actually the plan. Because what these investors wanted to do was turn the estates in Ireland into mass farms and ranches so that they could mass export the product. And in order to do this, they needed to get rid of all of the people who were living there. And why did they want to do this? Because exports are making bank at this time. So 
Rents were purposefully raised so that there was no chance of the already destitute tenants being able to pay. And then the new landowners had grounds to evict these families. So between 1849 and 1854, 50,000 families were evicted in this way. No, I did not say 50,000 people. I said 50,000 families. So, who knows how many actual people were left homeless from this particular section of distress caused by the famine. It's wild. So, we've now come to a point where we've done a lot of talking about a lot of things. We're pretty far into the episode at this point. We've gotten a lot of general information. But in my personal opinion, one of the things that makes the famine such a potent, powerful, and heart-rending memory in history is all of the first counts that we have access to. Excuse me, the first-hand accounts. I think I said first accounts. Kind of the same thing. We are actually really, really fortunate in the amount of first-hand accounts that we have. We have a lot of writings from all over Ireland, from all different levels of society that witnessed the famine in many different ways. Um, And as any historian will tell you, when you're studying history, primary sources are absolutely vital, right? Like, in a, And in a situation like this, mass starvation, politics and religion and agriculture and military and medical threads all coming together to form this tragedy. The importance of a primary source really can't be overstated, truly. So I'm going to read you a short extract from the writings of one Nicholas McEvoy, who was the parish priest of Kells. And he wrote this in October of 1845. Now, remember, my friends, this is right at the very beginning of the famine that he's writing this. Like at the very beginning, right when the crops are failing. He's not writing this in the middle or the end. He's writing it at the very beginning. And he writes, quote, On my most minute personal inspection of the, of the potato crop in this most fertile potato growing locale is founded my unexpressibly painful conviction that one family in 20 of the people will not have a single potato left on Christmas Day next. With starvation at our very doors, our provisions are hourly wafted from every port. From one milling establishment, I have last seen not less than 50 loads of meal moving on, fence to go feed the foreigner, leaving starvation and death the sure and certain fate of the toil and sweat that raised this food. The right of the starving to try and sustain existence is a right far and away paramount to every right that property confers. Infinitely more precious in the eyes of reason, in the adorable eye of the omnipotent creator, is the life of the last and least of human beings than the whole united property of the entire universe. Now, interestingly enough, in May of 2020, there was actually a modern response to this in in a review. And this was done by an editor named Maurice Earls, and he wrote, quote, Dr. McAvoy in his grim forebodings and apocalyptic fear was closer to the truth than the sanguine rationalists quoted in newspapers. But McAvoy, like many others, overestimated the likelihood of mass rebellion. And even this great clerical friend of the poor could hardly have contemplated the depth of social, economic, and cultural destruction which would persist and deepen over the following century and beyond. It was politics that turned a disease of potatoes into famine, 
and it was politics which ensured its disastrous after effects would disfigure numerous future generations. So let's move on. I'm just going to leave you with that and let's move on. You've been asking for something and I'm going to deliver. It is time to talk more about evictions because we've mentioned them quite a few times already. So we're now we're going to like come to them and talk about it because evictions were absolutely rampant during the famine. And like we've discussed earlier, in many, many cases, it was basically a death sentence for those who were evicted, which brings us back to our favorite people in the episode, landlords. Landlords were responsible for paying the rates for every tenant whose yearly rent was four pounds or less. Thus, those landlords who had many poor tenants were faced with really large bills that they couldn't pay because famine. So many of these landlords began clearing out these tenants and letting the land in larger plots for over four pounds to reduce their debts. Some of these clearances happened in 1846, but the mass of evictions was in 1847. And remember everybody, 1847 is known as the Black 47. It was the worst year of the famine. We cannot possibly imagine what life was like in Ireland for millions of people at this time. And again, this is the year when mass evictions started. It's impossible to know really how many over the course of the famine, but estimates are about half a million evictions. Um, a scholar by the name of Helen Litton says that there were thousands of quote-unquote voluntary surrenders, but she also notes that there was, quote, precious little voluntary about them. In some cases, tenants were persuaded to take a little bit of money to leave their homes, quote, cheated into believing that the workhouse would take them in. It's, uh, okay, so West Clare is an area in Ireland, and it was one of the worst areas for eviction. Thousands of families were evicted, and then their homes were destroyed. In this area, in April of 1848, it was estimated that 1,000 houses with an average of six people each had been leveled within six months. So there's a family that we need to briefly mention here. Do not forget about them because they're really important and we're going to be coming back to them soon. But for our purposes, for just this moment um, where we're discussing evictions. So let's talk about the family of, okay, I looked up how to say their name. And it's, there's a lot of different ways you can say it according to this Irish source I found. Some people pr pronounce it man. Some people pronounce it mahon or mahoon. I'll probably just pronounce it man. Um, it is spelled M-A-H-O-N. I'll probably just say man because that's the easiest. But again, there are many different ways it is pronounced in Ireland. So... This family, the Mann family of Strokestown House, evicted 3,000 people in 1847, and they were still able to dine on lobster soup. The notorious landlord, Major Dennis Mann, evicted thousands and thousands of people before the end of 1847, and he was actually killed. He was murdered that same year. On some place, In some places on his estate, there was a population decline of 60%. That's correct. After West Clare, the worst area for evictions was County Mayo. 
10% of all evictions from um, between 1849 and 1854 Warren County, Mayo. George Bingham, the third Earl of Lucan, owned 60,000 acres and he was among the worst landlords for evicting tenants. He was said that he would, quote, not breed paupers to pay priests. And he evicted 2,000 people alone in just one area of his estate. He was one of the people who was clearing land so that he could make huge grazing farms. Um, another landlord who evicted about 25% of his tenants justified it by saying that he was only getting rid of the idle and dishonest. So, you know, that's what that is. So the population of one townland, just to give you another taste of this, in County Meath, the population of one townland plummeted 67%. And in the neighboring townland, it fell 54%. Yep. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of secret societies started popping up at this time. They were basically just poor men gathering together to stand up to landlords and all of the horrible laws. A lot of them, a lot of these secret societies, I mean, they were greatly weakened by the famine. It's true. They kind of existed before. The famine really took a, you know, they all took a hit. Really, the purpose of these secret societies was to stop people from getting evicted, really. However, revenge what did take place and that's where we get um the murder of dennis mann there were other landlords that were also shot and um other occupiers of land who actually didn't have tenants were also murdered so the people are not cool with what's happening obviously so lord friedrich excuse me lord william frederick villiers the fourth earl of clarendon was alarmed at the number of landlords that were being shot, and he was afraid of rebellion. A lot of people were afraid of rebellion. However, it didn't, um, it wasn't really going to happen. Um, people just, I mean, they tried, but it wasn't, I don't know. I think that people were just too tired and hungry, honestly, for a mass rebellion. Um, Lord Russell, you know, Prime Minister Russell, who we just love, he was not sympathetic to the fact that landlords were being killed, which is actually quite wild. Clarendon believed the landlords of themselves were mostly responsible for the tragedy in the first place. He's not wrong. Saying that, quote, it is quite true that landlords in England would not like to be shot like hares and partridges, but neither does any landlord in England turn out 50 persons at once and burn their houses over their heads, giving them no provision for the future. Yep. Yep, basically. So in order to kind of help with this, the Crime and Outrage Act was passed in December of 1847. And what this did was send additional troops to Ireland, because that's the obvious solution. Let's just send the army in. So let's take a moment and visit a firsthand account again. Because I think it's one thing to hear the numbers when it comes to evictions or to go over some examples you know, like we've just done, but I don't think that we can really fathom it. We hear statistics like a 60% population decline in some areas. And obviously we know how horrific and outrageous that is, but what does it really look like? We're going to read a little bit of a letter from one Bishop Thomas Nolte, and he was writing about the evictions that he witnessed. Quote, 
700 human beings were driven from their homes in one day and set adrift on the world to gratify the caprice of one who, before God and man, probably deserved less consideration than the last and least of them. The horrid scenes I then witnessed I must remember all my life long. The wailing of women, the screams, the terror, the consternation of children, the speechless agony of honest, industrious men, wrung tears of grief from all who saw them. I saw officers and men of a large police force who were obliged to attend the occasion cry like children on beholding the cruel sufferings of the very people whom they would be obliged to butcher had they offered the least resistance. The landed proprietors in a circle all around, and for many miles in every direction, warned their tenantry with threats of direct vengeance against the humanity of extending to any of them the hospitality of a single night shelter, and in little more than three years, nearly a fourth of them lay quietly in their graves. All right, so that was um, obviously really heavy, but we're just, we're going to continue. Okay, so another thing that we've mentioned a lot in this episode without really um, diving deep into it is the immigration aspect of the famine, and we need to spend some time on that. So as we've discussed, there are a lot of different number figures for things like death toll and how many people left Ireland during this time. A pretty safe number is about 1 million. So at least 1 million people left Ireland during the famine. A lot of the numbers that I have found are closer to 2, 3, and even 4 million. So I almost want to say 2 million is better. But anyway, this is a period of about five years, right? So even if one million people are leaving, that's, I mean, remember the famine, before the famine, the total population of Ireland was about eight million people. So to lose one million people in five years, that's that's a really big deal. It, it truly is. So according to the rough estimates that we have, we here are a few figures. One million-ish people immigrated long distance, and this was mainly to North America, so either the United States or Canada, and about 200,000 immigrated short distance, mostly to Britain. In fact, Liverpool was one of the main cities that immigrants went to, and by the end of the famine, so around 1851, 25% of the population in Liverpool was Irish-born, and it became known as, quote-unquote, Ireland's second capital. As of 2020, 75% of people from Liverpool have Irish ancestry. So that's pretty intense. Um, it's important to note, um, sorry, I lost my, okay, here we go. It's important to note that immigration was really high at this time anyway. Remember this, okay? It's like separately from the famine, um, I, the Irish were immigrating very heavily all throughout the 1800s. But obviously, the famine caused this to go absolutely through the roof. So we can't really be sure how much it added necessarily. Um, scholarly estimates range anywhere from about 45% to 85%, depending on the year and the county. So here's another really interesting estimate. Um, in the 30 years before the famine, the total number of immigrants had been about one to 1.5 million. So it's one thing to have that happen over 30 years, right? But then it happened again in only the span of five years. So I'd say that's going to leave a mark, really. And here's the other thing. Families usually did not immigrate altogether. Usually it was the younger members of the family first. And this happened so much that 
it was almost like a rite of passage for the younger family members to leave first. And unlike other very similar immigrations from other countries, women actually emigrated just as often, just as early in life, and in about the same numbers as men, which is completely unprecedented in any other emigration moment in any other country, really. And then these family members that emigrated would send money back to Ireland, allowing another family member to leave and come join them until the whole family could be there. So the mortality rates among immigrants were quite high. We've talked about this, but it was worse among immigrants who were relocating to Canada. And this is because of the ships that they would cross the Atlantic Ocean in. We've talked about these ships. They were known as coffin ships. They were overcrowded, poorly maintained, and very badly provisioned. They often set sail from various harbors in West Ireland, and they were completely unregulated, which contributes to the horrible conditions on board. So one of the reasons that people from Ireland were going to Canada in droves was because Canada was also a part of the British Empire, and as such, it could not close its ports to Irish ships. So this enabled immigrants to obtain very cheap passage on these unregulated ships. And here's the other thing about these unregulated ships, these coffin ships. More often than not, these ships were actually just cargo ships that had come to Ireland and then were returning back to Canada with empty holds. Meaning that they had not been built to carry people. And as such, they were not suitable for human passengers, okay? These were cargo ships. So as far as, like, 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 I just, I sounded like a valley girl just now. I think I said, like, 500 times. This was a cargo ship. This was not made, again, for human passengers. So there's not any of the kind of facilities that a passenger ship would have. And again, this is very much going to contribute to the mortality rate on board. And as far as immigration to America went, most of the Irish who arrived there became city dwellers. This is because the immigrants had no money, and so they really had no choice but to settle in whatever city their ship happened to land in. So by 1850, 25% of the populations of Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, and Baltimore were Irish. And by 1854, when the famine was well and truly over, between 1.5 and 2 million people had left Ireland due to evictions, starvation, and harsh living conditions. So in the 10 years between when the famine started and when it was pretty well over, Ireland lost about 2 million people. And this figure does not count the number of people who passed away. This is merely the amount of people who left Ireland. And as we know, the people who died as a result of the famine, that figure is at least another 1 million, probably much higher. So that alone gives us about 3 million people. All right, everybody. So we have come to a very crucial point in our episode. We're going to spend some time talking about the family that I introduced to you just a few minutes ago. Like I mentioned, they are very, very important. Now, I would not, again, I mentioned this before, a word on the pronunciation of their last name. It is spelled M-A-H-O-N. 
And on the pronunciation guide that I found, there are actually several different pronunciations that are used in Ireland for this last name. I am going to use the pronunciation man because I think that's just simpler for me as I tell the story. Um, but again, there are different ways to pronounce it. So you can look that up if you so desire. And I suggest you do. There's going to be a lot of links in the show notes this episode. There's a lot of really important sources to link. So look out for that. Now, okay, everybody, here's the thing. I realize that at this point in the episode, we've been here a while and we've heard a lot of hard things. This next part of the episode is really, really important. Now, I briefly considered taking it out entirely because we've been here long. This is our longest episode. Congratulations, we're here. The longest episode of Not Strictly History. Um, And we are not finished yet. So that's the reason I considered taking it out because we, again, we've been here a long time. We've talked about a lot of hard things. But I can't do that because it's a very crucial part of the famine. It's a very important story, and it deserves to be told as much as possible. So here we are. We're going to talk about it. So the Mann family, the head of this family, Dennis Mann, was born 1787 to Reverend Thomas Mann, and he joined the British Army and rose to the rank of Major in the Ninth Dragoons. He married a woman by the name of Henrietta Bathurst, and they had one child, Grace Catherine Mann, who married a man by the name of Henry Sandford Peckenham, who was the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they got married in 1847, the worst year of the famine. He added man to his name since he was now the heir to the estate. And why is he the heir to the estate? Because he's a dude, right? Like, I women did inherit estates back then, so I don't understand why the daughter wasn't the heir, but I didn't have time to go into that, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter. So when Dennis took over the estate, it was very deeply in debt because of the actions of the previous his uncle, who he took over from. And he began demanding rents from people who hadn't paid rent in a long time. And almost immediately upon his becoming the landlord, the tenants began a rent strike. Now, this started with eight farmers in 1835, and it eventually reached a point where nearly every tenant on his land refused to pay their rent. The people of his land, now this was in County Roscommon, They wanted lower rent, and they took their cue from strikes that were happening all over Ireland and also in England at this time. Basically, they planned to refuse to pay their rent until they got what they wanted. However, Dennis Mann just started forcibly evicting them instead, which is a choice he made. Now, Dennis is a very key player in the story of the famine, but so is his estate. So let's talk about this land he inherited and proceeded to exploit. Strokestown Park is the name of his estate, and it, again, it is in County Roscommon. It has it was the seat of the Peckenham Man family from the 1660s to 1979, and today this estate holds thousands of original artifacts spanning these three centuries. When Olive Peckenham Man sold the sold the mansion and the estate in 1979. Her family had owned the estate for 300 years, so 
that's pretty wild, right? And um, they hadn't really gotten rid of anything. So all of these collections had been built up over time. So when she sold the estate, it was like this time capsule packed with antiques of every kind and just basically just details of life from the head of the house to the lowest servant in the house is was all still in this home when it was sold in the 70s. And um, the house is now combined with the National Famine Museum, and it is run by the Irish National Trust. And really, it's a it's a beautiful tribute in many ways to this um, this era in history. And it shows the contrast between what life was like for the owners and then just the destitution of their tenants at this time. It's really it the the website, which I will link, said it very beautifully. And it says that it's the tragedy of the famine versus the beauty of the estate, which is very, very true. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the Strokestown Park archive, because it is legitness, my friends, okay? A man by the name of James Callery purchased Strokestown Park House in 1979. And upon purchasing this estate from the family who had owned it for 300 years, he was having a rummage through a bunch of old things. And what do you suppose he came across? I will tell you. He came across 55,000 original documents, all from the era of the famine. And discovering this inspired him to create the National Famine Museum, which, as we said, is now housed at Strokestown Park. Now, the Famine Archive is obviously part of this museum, and it is beyond incredible and miraculous that we have these documents today. Some of them are uploaded on the website. You can There is a digital exhibit that you can go through. I highly recommend it. The documents contain insights on how tenants um, experienced the famine, on how the, fam- the man family experienced the famine. There are thousands of documents that encapsulate the names and stories of tenants and laborers all throughout the estate. And there are numerous petitions from the most destitute and dispossessed of all of the tenants. Now, the archive is this treasure trove, my friends, of individual stories and firsthand accounts. And honestly, without it, thousands of men, women, and children would be completely lost to history. And the archive, okay, guys, this archive is so cool. It's so important that we have it. It also contains a very, very rare 19th century photography collection of plate glass negatives that have been conserved and professionally digitized. They have obviously a permanent um, exhibit, that's the word, there at the, at the museum in Ireland, but you can look at some things online as well. So one thing you can look at in the archive, as well as pictures and things, are rental records. It sounds boring, but my dudes, these are so cool. They are so cool. It is beyond wild that they even kept records like this. Like, let's talk about that. Let alone the fact that we have them today and can use them to study and remember them by. These, okay, so let's talk about them. These records, they were usually arranged by townland, and they recorded things like the names of the tenants, the size of their holding, Um, how much they owed in annual rent, information on um, the length of their lease, how much rent they had actually paid that year, how far in debt they may be in rent, and occasionally other information, like if a tenant was 
evicted during the year it would be noted in that rental record, which is wild. It's, it's, absolutely amazing that we have records like that. And I'm not sure that any other estate did this. We don't have records that say that any other estate did. So that's that again makes it even more incredible. And another wonderful thing that the museum has done is they've started what's called the Great Famine Voices Project, which brings together Irish immigrants, their descendants, and members of their communities to share family memories and stories. So it basically, according to the website, it aims to create a record of those who came from Ireland to North America and Great Britain, especially during the Great Hunger, but also in its aftermath, to just, um, again, create more of the story, share memories. Oral history is very, very important with events like this. So I love it that they have this project. And there's also another exhibit virtually, the virtual archive exhibit. It has petitions um, from the dispossessed. We talked about that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. You can go see the images of these petitions. There's also digitized rental books and letters. It's insane. Again, I will be linking the um, museum because you need to go. You need to go look at it. So one of let's talk about these petitions. Okay, they're one of the most powerful sources that the archive has, and they were sent to the landlord from tenants and laborers who were um, basically just afraid of being evicted or had been evicted and were starving. Um, without these petitions, again, these people would be completely lost to history. And this kind of thing, it honestly just brings to light how much of history we are missing. If you stop and think about it for just a moment, we are beyond fortunate to have records like this that keep people alive in some small way. If I think about it too hard for like for too long, I start to think about the literal billions of people that have been forgotten through history. And I start to get like really overwhelmed and mostly incredibly sad. So what we have to do is be grateful for things like this, that these just little pockets of history that we have that somehow still survived and that allow us to keep our past and those who came before us alive even if it's in a small way, it's so important. So if you read these petitions that are in this archive, you notice pretty quickly that the language is very, very formal, stilted, it's highly stylized, and it's usually written in a collective form, um, a group of people coming to the landlord for help for all of them, for example, rather than just one person. It's really strange and fascinating and actually kind of horrifying how formal these petitions are, honestly. These people, they are suffering incredibly and they still must, you know, quote unquote, humble themselves in order to beg support and help from their quote unquote superiors. You know, it speaks volumes about the social distance between the two groups. One petition in particular that really highlights this is called the Clunahi Petition. And this was one of the very first documents that was found by James Callery in 1979. And this is really what gave him the idea to start the museum and the archive. Now, I'm going to read you just a couple of excerpts from the petition. Quote, We beg leave most humbly and respectfully to state that we are this fortnight without employment. When we go to Mr. Barton, he will tell us to apply to Mr. Warnock. And when we go to Mr. Warnock, he sends us back to Mr. Barton. 
And speaking to Mr. Barton today, he says he must break 100 men more out of, out of the work, and thus we have no hope of relief from him. And what must we do? Our families are really and truly suffering in our present, and we cannot much longer withstand their cries for food. We have no food for them. Our potatoes are rotten and we have no grain. And gentlemen, you know but very little of the state of the suffering poor. We have peaceably and quietly conducted ourselves and patiently submitted to the will of divine providence and cannot refrain from expressing to you our feelings and our wrongs. Gentlemen, we fear that the peace of the country will be much disturbed if relief be not immediately more extensively afforded to the suffering peasantry. We are willing to work and hope, gentlemen, you will take part in remedying our present calamity by giving us employment. Now, let's talk about this for just a moment. Again, the language in this petition is very, very powerful. They're talking about how they are suffering so deeply and they don't know how they can continue to take their family's cries for food when there is none. And they even outright say, we've tried to be patient. We've, you know, we've, we've done our best and we don't want to rise up. We don't want bad things to happen, but we need help. And then what they're asking for is work. They just want to work, which is astonishing because in so many of these cases, I think the government, you know, especially, I mean, remember with the corn right? That was bought from America. They, they bought this, they gave it to people, but they were so worried that handing out food would just demotivate people. I don't even know if that's a word, but to not work. And that's, that's clearly not the case. And we've seen this many, many times throughout the episode already, that when people were going to the government and suggesting things, much of what they were suggesting was, please give the people work. So it's not, it's so telling. And in this petition, where they're suffering so greatly, they're still, again, very, very respectful to these gentlemen as their superiors. Note my air bunnies. And they're just begging to work. It's so, it's so incredible. And um, again, it's a little horrifying and very sad, truly. And what's even worse, I do not know the outcome of this petition. I'm very sorry. Um, I, again, encourage you to look on the website and go through all of these digital archives yourselves and the exhibits and see what you can find. But again, this is just an example of one of the many, many petitions that the archive holds. So this brings us to another thing that the Strokestown Park Archive contains. It is a group of documents that records the names of 1,490 tenants on this estate who, in 1847, were forced to leave Ireland. Now, I cannot tell you how badly I would like what I just said to not be true, but it is. And I think that this is definitely the most important part of our episode today, the story of the 1,490. It is horrifying in every way, honestly, and tragic in ways that we can't really know. But please stick with me. You have to hear this story. Not only is it their story, but I think it very loudly illustrates the story of 
millions of people in Ireland at this time. So a little earlier in the episode, we mentioned how part of the population decline during the famine came about because of immigration. People were starving and dying, and as a result, many of them felt that their only option was to leave Ireland. Now, a lot of these people ended up in England, some of them in America, and still more others ended up in Canada. But what we didn't mention is that all along with this fact, that evictions were completely rampant at this time, okay, so was something called assisted emigration, quote-unquote. It's pretty self-explanatory, everybody, unfortunately, but in order to give you the full picture of what this assisted emigration scheme entailed, let me guide you through some primary sources. We have here a memorandum written by one John Ross Mann. This man was not only Dennis Mann's cousin, he was also his estate agent or his middleman, whatever you want to call it. In this memorandum, he outlines and justifies his management of the Strokestown Park estate. Quote, Having walked over different parts of the property, I made a report of the circumstances of the tenantry and of the immense population on it, and informed Major Mann what measures I thought ought to be adopted to bring the estate into order. Emigration on an extensive scale was the principal feature of my plan as while the large and completely pauperized population which was on the estate remained, rent could not be collected, nor could any system for the amelioration of the condition of the people be introduced. In spring last, Major Mann supplied me with funds, and I arranged to give the tenantry of certain townlands a free passage to America with ample rations in addition to the government regulation. The immigrants were allowed to dispose of all their effects and were forgiven all rent. Any persons who could not conveniently dispose of their stock, I bought from and gave them money. I think I can safely say three years' rent was due by all, more by some. They expressed themselves much obliged and went cheerfully. So let me translate, everybody. Let me translate to you what's really going on here. The agent becomes the agent, the middleman. He looks at the state of the land and the people, and he realizes that the famine has been absolutely destructive and that there's pretty much no way that all the people can be helped and the land fixed. Because money, right? So, because it's the cheaper option, why don't they buy everybody tickets to America and force them to leave? In return, their houses will be leveled, everything will be taken from them, but hey, their rent is forgiven and then they can start a whole new life halfway across the world. Thumbs up, great plan. So, John Ross Mann gets this idea and tells our landlord, Dennis, this is is the plan. And this is what Dennis has to say. He writes to John Ross and says that when it comes to choosing which tenants should be assisted in their immigration, they should seek to remove, remember that word, remove, quote, those of the poorest and worst description who would become a charge on us for poor house outdoor relief. He also expresses some shock and fear, honestly, because as it turns out, when the tenants heard about the immigration scheme, Some of them started to apply for it, but guess which tenants were applying? 
Well, according to Dennis Mann, quote, many of those applying for this emigration scheme were the better sort of tenant and if possible should be kept at home. So it's almost like when you're starving and dying and suffering to the extreme, the thought of leaving your home and your land and your country and your whole culture might just seem inconvenient, maybe. But don't worry, everybody, because Dennis Mann finishes this letter by expressing further fear that, quote, we shall not be able to send all that apply and that in the end, the worst description will be left with us. Oh, and just to really, you know, let you know what's all going down here, just to really rub the salt in the wound, guess when all of this happened? The Black 47, the worst year of the famine. So how did this quote-unquote assisted immigration scheme play out? What really happened here? Let's find out. There are also records in the archive taken down by our good friend, Agent John Rossman, as well as the bailiffs who accompanied him. Because clearly, when you're going out and about amongst your tenants and offering them an optional opportunity to be assisted in leaving everything they've ever known, the obvious people that you want with you are law enforcement. So they moved from townland to townland all over the estate, investigating as to whether or not certain tenants wanted to take up this assisted immigration scheme. That is, have their cabins leveled, be compensated for the crops they might have had, have their rents forgiven, and all of this to take up a scheme to resettle in Canada. Now, this record indicates the size of families and the kind of debt they held that would be erased as a result of taking up the scheme. Ultimately, what does this mean? It means that we have a list of people who decided to take up this scheme and leave Ireland, which is obviously an incredible resource to have. There are some discrepancies in this list of people. Um because of, you know, just history is rough there. We have evidence that later maybe people gave away their tickets. So people who were on the list didn't actually leave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, overall, again, it's a very, very important source and most of it is accurate. But to be completely honest, this is a very haunting record to have. Very haunting. And I feel completely fine with saying that because I, I don't think you could, I don't think there's any truer way to say it. So we're definitely not done here. It's time to tell the story of the 1,490 the best way that we can. So let's start in May of 1847. The 1,490 tenants who had taken up the quote-unquote assisted emigration scheme left Strokestown Park. The only home they had ever known or that their families had ever known for probably hundreds of years. The majority of these tenants were those that Dennis Mann called the poorest and of the worst description. They were starving. They were suffering from various illnesses that come along with starvation. And now they have to leave everything they've ever known to travel thousands of miles to try and start a new life. The first step in this process is to get to Dublin and board the ships that will take them on their journey. But... This is not as easy as it sounds. On the day that the tenants departed Strokestown Park, they proceeded to walk, starving and exhausted, for 102 miles. 
and they were escorted by a bailiff because assisted immigration. Miraculously, all 1,490 made it to Dublin and eventually to the ships that would take them to Canada. Now, again, let's talk about these ships. What were they known as? Thank you. Coffin ships. And the reason why is going to become apparent in just a second. Now, there were four different ships that ended up taking the 1,490 to Canada. The um, Aaron's Queen, Naomi, Virginius, and the John Munn. Okay? Now, I have here a table of statistics of the death toll here. Okay? And I'm going to go over it as like quick as distinctly as I can because you need to know okay so let's start with the ship the Virginius okay every single passenger on this boat was one of the 4,490 and there were 476 passengers on board out of 476 267 passed away that is a percentage of 46.4 percent on the Naomi, there were 421 passengers and 350 and a half assisted immigrants. Children were often counted as half. Of this, um, the total deaths of the assisted immigrants was 196. That's 35.8%. On the Aaron's Queen, we're at 14% with 136 deaths. On the John Munn, we are at 47.3% with 187 deaths. Let's go over this really quickly. The ship with the least amount of deaths of the 1,490 was Aaron's Queen with 136 deaths, a 14% total of the 1,490. Altogether, with all of this added up, the death toll of the 1,490 by the time they made it to Canada was 26%. Translation, by the time these people made it to Canada, over a quarter of them had passed away. The cause of death for many of these people, not even just the 1,490, but also hundreds of thousands of immigrants who left separately, was something called famine fever. I think we've talked about famine fever in this episode. And again, it's just what you think it is. You get a terrible fever because you're starving and you have no immune system, and eventually you die. To die from a fever, think about, think about that, how horrible that would be. For the Irish immigrants arriving in Canada, there was one final stop before you tried to make a new life for yourself. If you were sick, you would probably get sent into a place like the quarantine fever sheds. Here, there were 5,000 deaths alone in immigrants total, right? Let's visit a firsthand account again, referring to our 1,490. Let's talk about this firsthand account. Let's talk about the Virginius. Again, this ship was completely full of passengers that, that made, wow, I'm having a hard time saying this. The Virginius carried only passengers that were from the 1,490. So when it got to Canada, the Virginius, 
Dr. George Douglas was the superintendent of the quarantine site. And he's talking about this ship. He said that 106 passengers were sick. 158 had died on the journey. And, quote, the few that were able to come up on deck were ghastly yellow-looking specters. So, yes, there was a lot of suffering here. Well, just in case you were wondering, news of what happened to the 1,490 got back to Ireland, and in particular, it got back to Strokestown Park. And all of those who had watched friends, family members, various loved ones march away found out how many people had passed away. And they were upset. Now, at this time, Dennis Mann had left local priest Michael McDermott in his place to fill um, fill in as the chairman of the Strokestown Relief Committee while he was in England for a time. And while this priest was filling in for him, he accused Mann of amusing himself by, quote, burning houses and turning people out to starve. Intriguing. So upon hearing the news of the 1,490, a large number of Dennis Mann's remaining tenants refused another attempt at an emigration scheme. Let's talk about this really quickly. He was already trying another immigration scheme, trying to get people to go for that. And everybody was like, LOL, no. So he responded by evicting 600 families. So about 3,000 people. Now, what do you suppose happened? I'm going to tell you. Major Mann was shot dead in his carriage as he was returning home from a meeting in Roscommon Town on the evening of November 2nd, 1847. He was actually in the company of his physician, Dr. Terence Shanley, who, some physician, man, he was shot and he died. Within an hour of his death, bonfires were lit on all of the hills across Roscommon in celebration of his murder. And the priest, McDermott, was actually accused of inciting violence. Now, here's the thing. The aristocracy said that man's murder was caused by a Catholic conspiracy against Protestant landlords. The accusation against McDermott was made in Parliament by one Lord Farnham of a Protestant organization. And he claimed that in the Sunday Mass before the murder, McDermott had said from the pulpit, quote, major man is worse than Cromwell, and yet he lives. Strong, very bold statement. He didn't say that. Um, McDermott denied this accusation and said that the sole cause of man's murder was, quote, the infamous and inhuman cruelties which were wantonly and unnecessarily exercised against a tenantry, whose feelings were already wound up to woeful and vengeful exasperation by the loss of their exiled relatives, as well as by hunger and pestilence. Translation. The priest said, um, I did not say that. He was murdered because he is horrible and cruel to his tenants, and he exiled a whole bunch of them, and they died. Now again, remember that word exile, and remember that word remove from earlier? Remember those words, please. Now, three men were arrested for this murder, and they were tried the next year at the Summer Assizes. One man by the name of Michael Gardiner. He pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty, 
This was a conditional plea that was granted and he was sentenced to transportation for life, which means he probably got sent to Australia to work. Another man by the name of Owen Barney, he was hanged on August 8th, 1848. He signed a gallows confession, excuse me. And Patrick Hasty was also hanged on August 8th, 1848, and he also signed a gallows confession. And Major Mann is buried in um, the family crypt at Strokestown Park. Oh, and just in case you were curious, there was another round of mass evictions after the murder. Now listen to me before we continue. I am not saying that murder is okay because that's psychotic. However, I feel like this particular murder kind of makes sense. I don't think that you should murder people. But again, this pretty well checks out. Now, that's where I'm going to leave it. It is very tragic. Um, His family was obviously devastated. His wife stayed in mourning the rest of her life. Um, But don't exile people. Don't stop killing people. Eat a moon pie, okay? So, okay, let's briefly return to the story of the 1,490. Again, they were forced to leave Ireland in the spring of 1847, the worst year of the famine, and by the time they reached their destination, at least a quarter of them had passed away. Out of all of these people, we only have one first-hand account of what that journey was like. An orphan by the name of Thomas Quinn left a record of his experience. He was six years old when he and his family were forced to leave their home and country. His mother, Margaret, died earlier in the journey of famine fever, probably on the ship from Ireland to Canada. He and his older brother, Patrick, who was 12, and his father, James, all made it to Canada. Here they were sent to the quarantine sheds because the father, James, also had famine fever. And while they were in the quarantine sheds, James Quinn summoned his two young sons to his bedside. I'm going to read some of Thomas's own words about the experience up to this point. Quote, It was 1847. A famine threatened the Irish people with total extinction. The most astonishing part of the awful spectacle was not to see the people die, but to see them live through such great distress, escaping death, taking the road of exile from their native country. Like walking skeletons, they went in tears, seeking hospitality from more favored lands. I still remember one of the most admirable clergymen who led us to the bedside of my dying father. As he saw us, my father with his failing voice repeated the old Irish adage, remember your soul and your liberty. Thomas and his brother Patrick were then raised by a French-speaking family in Canada, and decades later, Thomas recounted his his experiences in a speech called A Voice of Ireland that was published in Canada. His testimony remains the only eyewitness account of Strokestown's surviving immigrants. His account also includes some other details of the journey. He said, quote, Our hearts were broken when we left County Roscommon, but we prayed for a better life in North America. 
He also said, quote, we didn't know what horror awaited us. They waited in Liverpool for two months before they sailed to Canada, and then they were cramped together in bunks surrounded by death and sickness. They got one meal per day. There was very little drinking water, and they were surrounded by filth. He talked about how the quote-unquote dreaded famine fever came upon their family, and he said, quote, we left Ireland as a family but arrived in Canada as orphans. They were placed with a French family by a charitable Catholic organization, and he said, quote, raised in the French language, we still speak with an Irish voice. I'm going to keep reading some parts of his speech. Quote, what people underwent the weight of evil and oppression as much as did those in Ireland? Allow me, ladies and gentlemen, to describe an incident in which I was involved, an incident in which I myself was an actor and victim. During the course of three years, more than four million unfortunates, miraculously escaping death, took the road of exile from their native country. Like walking skeletons, they went in tears, seeking hospitality from more favored lands. A malady known nowhere else to silence to science, the famine fever came to add its untold terrors to so much other suffering and misery. At the bedside of my dying father, as he saw us, my father with his failing voice repeated the old Irish adage, remember your soul and your liberty. Ireland deserves and will always have my admiration and love. So again, my friends, it is not known exactly how many people died during the Great Famine, but it is believed that more people died from disease than from starvation. But again, we've seen various accounts from the time that cite that the population that decreased by about 50% overall. I'm not sure how accurate 50% of the population is. Um, I think that the 1 million mark for immigration and the 1 million mark for death is probably a little more accurate the fact that several sources I have found from the time say 4 million tells a story too. I, as I've researched, as I've written this episode, I'm more comfortable with a 3 million number myself. Now, for probably 1.5 for immigration and 1.5 for death toll. That just seems better to me because of all of the numbers that I've run across that's just me and my research. Again, there are a lot of estimates out there, but most people say that 1 million for immigration and 1 million for death is the accepted statistic. Another area of uncertainty lies in the descriptions of disease given by tenants as to the cause of their relatives' deaths. Now we have two categories here, famine-induced diseases and dis diseases of nutritional deficiency. Now, here's the thing that's not surprising at all. Smallpox and influenza spread rapidly, and the greatest death toll was from famine fever. Again, probably for the five millionth time, fever and famine are closely related all throughout history. Overcrowding at relief depots created an ideal condition for the spread of all of these diseases like typhus, typhoid, and the famine fever. And... Just in case you were looking for a little extra spice in this story, there was also an epidemic of Asiatic cholera in Ireland at this time. 
The population was already incapacitated by the famine and disease. This cholera obviously came from Asia. It reached Ireland in 1849, several years into the famine, and it's estimated that the population was further reduced by about 20% because of this plague. So that's insane. Along with these very extreme numbers of population decline, there's definitely going to be some cultural changes that come from that. Let's go over just a few, okay? In 1840, so before the famine, the average marriage age was 24.4 for women and 27.7 for men. In the decades after the famine, the age of marriage rose to 28 or 29 for women and 33 for men. And as many as one-third of men and one-fourth of women never married due to low wages and economic problems. There is also a very, very, very large number of famine orphans, and this resulted in a spike in sex workers. The Irish language, the language of the quote-unquote peasants, was often regarded as dead or not delicate enough for educated people. It was very, very endangered by the famine because so many of of the people who spoke this language either left to foreign countries where they wouldn't be speaking it anymore or they passed away. So again, this language was very endangered. Now, as we come near the end of this episode, finally, we need to revisit something really important. The role of the British government in all of this. Christine Keneally, a professor at Ireland's Great Hunger Institute in Canada, has written that, quote, the major tragedy of the Irish famine of 1845 through 1852 marked a watershed moment in modern Irish history. Its occurrence, however, was neither inevitable nor unavoidable. Obviously, underlying factors that combined to cause the famine were aggravated by a very inadequate government response. And Christine Keneally continues but to say that, quote, the government had to do something to help alleviate the suffering but it became apparent that the government was using its information not merely to help it formulate its relief policies, but also as an opportunity to facilitate various long-desired changes within Ireland. Another scholar writes, quote, there is no doubt that Britain could have saved Ireland, and compares the 9.5 million the government spent on famine relief in Ireland. Now, I'm going to pause. Earlier in the, in the episode, we cited 7 million. So here's a little discrepancy. But from 7 to 9 isn't a huge difference. You know, 7 to 9 million over the course of the famine for relief. Okay? A few years later, the British government spent 63.9 million on the, on a, on the Crimean War. Crimean War. Excuse me. That's pronounced a lot of different ways. This particular scholar argues that despite formal integration into the UK, quote, Ireland was effectively a foreign country to the British, who were therefore unwilling to spend resources that could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. I agree. Some also point to the structure of the British Empire as a contributing factor. Um, A scholar by the name of James Anthony Frode wrote that, quote, England governed Ireland for what she deemed her own interest making her calculations on the gross balance of her trade ledgers and leaving moral obligations aside as if right and wrong had been blotted out of some out of the statute books of the universe. 
Dennis Clark, an Irish-American historian and critic of empire in general, claimed that the famine was, quote, the culmination of generations of neglect, misrule, and repression. It was an epic of English colonial cruelty and inadequacy. For the landless cabin dwellers, it meant emigration or extinction. Interestingly enough, my friends, the British government has not expressly apologized for its role in the famine. But in 1997, at a commemoration event in County Cork, actor Gabriel Byrne read out a message from the then Prime Minister Tony Blair that acknowledged the inadequacy of the government response. And he asserted that, quote, those who governed in London at the time failed their people through standing by whilst a crop failure turned into a massive human tragedy. This message was very well received in Ireland, where it was understood as the very long sought after apology. Archive documents released in 2021, however, show that this message was not, in fact, written by or approved by Prime Minister Tony Blair. He could not be reached by his aides at this time. It was therefore approved by Tony Blair's principal private secretary, John Holmes, on his own initiative. So we love John Holmes, truly. I mean, thank you, sir. That was very needed. That was very needed. Thank you. So this brings us all, all of these little facts, okay? This brings us to one more question that we need to address when it comes to the famine. It is closely linked to the role of the British government and how they seemingly allowed an entire country to just waste away. This question is really a question that um, is asked about the about this famine. It's just like the question, TM, really. Basically it is, does all of this action of the British government, action or inaction, does this translate as genocide? Again, this is a question that has been asked a lot, and it has been asked from the time of the famine itself. If you'll remember, letters from prominent, prominent politicians at the time called the government's response, quote-unquote, a policy of extermination, right? We also have um, words like remove and exile when it comes to immigration. Now, but again, can we truly call this genocide? Well, there have been a lot of studies done on this, okay? And according to some sources I found, allegedly almost all historians reject the claim that the British government's response to the famine constituted a genocide. This opinion is partially based on the fact that with regard to famine-related deaths, there is a lack of intent to commit genocide. For a mass death atrocity to be defined as a genocide, it must include the intentional destruction of a people. So we can see how there's definitely a gray area here. It's not really fitting the technical de definition. However, in the late 1990s, professors Charles E. Rice and Francis Boyle concluded that the British government deliberately pursued a race and ethnicity-based policy aimed at destroying the Irish people, and that the policy of mass starvation amounted to genocide per retrospective application of Article 2 of the Hague Convention of 1948. It is important to note that these two professors were not scholars of Irish history. Now, Irish historian Cormac O'Grada, who we've talked, we've talked about him a few times in this episode, he actually rejects the claim of genocide, and he states that, quote, 
no academic historian continues to take the claim of genocide seriously. He also says that the claim of genocide overlooks, quote, the enormous challenge facing relief agencies, both central and local, public and private. And he thinks that a case of neglect is much easier to sustain than one of genocide. Professor of History John Leeser writes that the binary framing of the debate about whether the British government's actions are good or bad is unsatisfactory, and that this entire debate surrounding the genocide question is oversimplifying complex factors behind the actions of the government as a whole and, and the individuals within it, which makes sense. I, that argument does make sense. But here, here is the thing, my friends. Here is my take on this. I'm about to share my opinion. As a historian, yes, I am not an Irish historian by any means, and I am not one versed in these kinds of studies. I will outright admit that. But as learned of an opinion as I can possibly give you under these circumstances, I do not think that the British government's response to the famine technically constitutes genocide because they did not start out with the intention to kill an entire group of people. There weren't systems and procedures put in place in order to cause their destruction. However, I think that it is far more than a case of neglect. I feel like calling it a case, a case of neglect is gross neglect in, in, in and of itself. And though I cannot call it genocide because it doesn't fit the definition, I think it's something very near to that, truly. And again, I am not a historian of Irish history. I, I don't have credentials in this area at all. But I am a historian, and in all of my research and using all of the tools at my disposal, and at least a solid month of research on this topic, I truly believe that it is closer to genocide than not. And I completely understand that this is a wildly complex question. I mean, how long have we been here today? This is definitely our longest episode. There is so many layers here. So much goes into this. And I talk about this in almost every episode, how complex history is, that there are always going to be literally millions of factors going into something. That's why being a historian is difficult, right? And as a historian, I very much appreciate that it's difficult to make general statements in the face of complexity, especially in a case like this. But here's the other thing. Truly, when the government simply did not do certain things in order to save its people, when food was being grown in abundance and then shipped away from those who needed it most, when people were being forced from their homes while they were starving and ill, I think that there is more to the question of genocide as well. I mean, perhaps it's not technically genocide, but why were the people at the time even thinking that? Why was that, a, why was that language being thrown around at the time? Again, I'm not going to call it genocide because it lacks some very, very crucial aspects of what genocide is, and that's actually very disrespectful in many ways. So I will not call it genocide. But what I will say is that I think it's something pretty close. And because there's a lot of layers here and so many complexities going on, Obviously, 
it's hard. It's really hard to say. It's hard to know. And I understand why most historians largely reject this claim. But here's, here's really what it all boils down to. At the end of the day, millions of people were suffering and dying. And I really don't think that you can put that in any kind of neat box, actually, as much as we want to, as much as we try. There's so much going on here. I don't think that we can make generalized statements that are strictly accurate. Um, I don't think that that's as possible in this case as it is in others. I truly don't. There's just so much going on here. But again, for me, it comes down to the fact that literally millions of people were suffering and dying. And I think that there's definitely more that could have been done. It's hard to know what to say. Again, we can't really put it in any kind of box. And this this question is so complex. But I definitely think that the debate has merit. And I think it is something that definitely deserves to be discussed more. All right, everybody, we have done it. We have come to the end of this episode. And I am so beyond grateful that you stuck with me and that we did this episode today. It was very, very heavy, yes, but it was incredibly rewarding to research and to present to you. And I hope that you were able to learn something and um, and to feel that along the way. Now, I know that this is by far our longest episode, and we definitely could have split it into two parts and been very comfortable indeed, but I didn't want to do that because it's a story that I think deserves to be told all at once. And so that's what we did. This story is many, many things. But in conclusion, I want to end by visiting, revisiting one of the things from Thomas Quinn's personal account of what happened to him during his journey with the 1,490. Remember that his dying father called him to his side and said, remember your soul and your liberty. This is an old Irish adage. And as this man was dying from famine fever and knew that his sons were to be orphaned in a foreign country, this is what he told them, to remember their soul and their liberty. And it's not lost on me that it was also a very well-known Irish saying. I think that this is beyond beautiful. And I think that this demonstrated to his sons everything that was important, to remember who they truly were inside, what they deserved and where they came from. And um, that I believe is probably the most powerful thing that I can leave you with. There is so much suffering in this story, but there is also so much beauty. Um, There is a lot that I was not able to include in this episode. So I beg you to read the description box because I've included a lot of it in there and a lot of very important links. Just very quickly, There was an incredible donation by the Cherokee Nation to the Irish people during the Black 47. That is an amazing story. And again, I've linked that in in the description box. Please go read about that. There is so much about this story to keep learning, to keep knowing. But again, I think 
you know, I, you can look at it from so many different ways, but today I want to leave it on, on something more positive because even though there is this horrible tragedy that in so many ways can't really be defined, there is such a, um, a, a feeling of resiliency and purity almost to this. And when I think of James Quinn having his sons come to his side and saying to them, remember your soul and your liberty, it really drives home to me how how hardworking and true these people were and how very, very strong their hearts were. And I think that that is something that can be said very much of the Irish. And I hope that that really comes through in this episode that you were able to feel that they very much deserve that. And um, again, this story really deserves to be told. So thank you for being here with me today and for hanging out with me as always. I've loved doing this episode and learning more with you. Thank you so much. Give me a follow on Instagram. Send me an email. Let me know your thoughts on this episode. Again, please visit the description box and learn more. I'd love to hear back from you because there was so much I couldn't include. Thanks for hanging out with me, and we will see you next time on Not Strictly History. Mm-hmm.